Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly of KH Daily Knives, and this is The Knife Perspective, episode number 063. Yeah, I'm leaving the country tomorrow, and I just, I, there there is no show title. This is um, The Mystery Show. This is episode number 063, The Mystery Show. <laughs> How you doing tonight, Kyle? Doing pretty good. I've uh, been pretty exhausted from doing all the housework and stuff on the recently and uh by the time this show airs hopefully all of my pocket bushcrafters will be done i finished uh six of the the handles that are in the westinghouse canvas bias cut canvas micarta and the patina and everything on those is looking spectacular if you so, do say so yourself yeah it looks they're looking pretty dang good is that the the like the antique westinghouse that you got from um from the guys at Atlas. Yep. Can we say yeah, it's that you a got it bunch there? of their like inch and a half thick stuff? Uh, it's all bias cut, so it all the layers are perpendicular to the the tang instead of parallel to the tang. Yeah, that stuff's beautiful. Yeah, and it's got all sorts of like dark brown, light brown uh, stripes and stuff in there. I didn't realize it until after I had already glued all the or like had already messed everything up uh, when I was cutting it on the table saw. I should have numbered them all to uh, make sure they were book matched. But I didn't think about that early enough when I was cutting up all the handle material. I was just like, this is so awesome. Like cutting them all the same size. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. I've only got to do 64 more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So how are you doing, Dan? Uh, I am outstanding. I am slowly but surely getting caught up on some of the back orders. Mm hmm. I got a tracking number today. Uh, That's pretty exciting. You did. Uh, had an MRI on uh, Friday. We'll find out if I tore my rotator cuff again. So um, <laughs> it's a good thing you got that knife today. <laughs> yeah. So the, I, I imagine they're going to tell Beth because your Croatia call will probably be pretty expensive for uh, roaming. Yeah, no, they'll, uh, I'll get the email. Um, okay. And I'm finally going to, well, not finally. Yeah, when it, when I started losing weight and rolling on the mats, Beth is like, "All right, whatever it costs, I'm fine. Medical bills, we're 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 about to test that." <laughs> Medical bill number one. <clears throat> well, uh, hopefully, that, hopefully it's all okay, and you just need to relax and ice and do whatever. Maybe a cortisone shot or two. Yeah, I'm thinking nothing that uh, food and wine in Croatia for two weeks won't fix. Okay. Um, Make sure you take lots of pictures. I will. Um, and I'm going to meet, uh, when I was down at Georgia Bushcraft, uh, I met a couple of Serbians there. So we're actually flying into Croatia early. We're going to jet over to Serbia, spend a couple of days there, and then run back over to Croatia and do food and wine through the, the interior of the country with 
one of the chefs spends half his time in the States and half his time in Croatia. And then the other is uh, Bob Cook, who is a phenomenal chef down in Charleston. Okay. So we're going to be hanging out with the two of them. I know virtually nothing about Croatian food, so I'll be uh, interested to see what uh, what their cuisine is like. Uh, to be honest, I didn't know much until this was kind of Beth's. Um, we don't have kids in the house anymore. Let's do something crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, impulse trip. I am. I'm pretty excited. I mean, it's um, kind of this mix of Germanic, Italian. Um, supposed to have really phenomenal white wines. So I'm just going to jump into the middle of it. Try to gain less than 25 pounds, and I'll let you know. All righty. See if that's uh, a place I should make my buck on my bucket list. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and say yes. <laughs> because I've been there, but you know, everybody's got their own standard. Gotcha. Cool. Um, let's jump into dealers and then sponsors. Um, I, I, I say we're going to mix it up. Okay. You know, I, I believe that some, maybe even most of our listeners are actually, they're listening to, to the shout outs that I give, we give to our sponsors. They're interacting. They're, they're helping us pay for this show for them, mm -hmm. but there's one or two of you still aren't doing it so i'm afraid we're gonna have to mix it up so you can't just fast forward through that section <laughs> or at least you're gonna have to work for it a little bit more there you are you know who you are <laughs> all right you can find the finest kitchen cutlery dogwood custom knives and cage daily knives at old town cutlery they're also a sponsor of the knife perspective podcast just great guys down there lee and melissa looked love seeing all their Looked like they had a great event at the uh, Knifetoberfest. Knifetoberfest. And uh, one of the friends of the show, Todd Hunt, won <laughs> Knife Maker of the Year. So congrats, Todd. I saw that. So yeah, yeah, he got I, a nice little little plaque that he posted in the, the Knucklehead group. If I was capable of envy, I would be a little envious of that. <laughs> and uh, got Knife Center that carries Dogwood Custom Knives and by the time the show goes up hopefully they'll have the those pocket bushcrafters that I was talking about sell some cage daily knives on there with a pocket sheath y'all can't see this but I'm adding cage daily knives to the uh, the Knife Center nice H oh, that's not K-H <laughs> you know what Kyle is going to add cage daily knives to the show uh, and then uh, you can get uh uh, Dan's Dogwood Custom Knives at the Cook Station, and you can also get a friend of the podcast, uh, John Medlin's mm. Pans at the Cook Station. He posted a video walking yeah. through there, and that place looks pretty darn sweet. So whenever I make it over to Greenville to see you, Dan, we're definitely going to have to hit that place up. I love his pans. Um, I've got some butter pats that that I've been using forever, and I got I think his twelve inch pan, and now I've got his fourteen and his eight. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I love, I love the finish. I love the weight. Uh, I use them both down at the fish camp cause I can throw them right down on the coals or I use them on my, my cooktop at home. Do you have a gas cooktop or? Yeah. Gas. Okay. Nice. Uh, I can't imagine it wouldn't work on electric, but, uh, mm -hmm. um, but I was just curious. I was curious what a foodie like you and Beth would have at your house. Yeah. I, I grew up, I, I grew up cooking on electric. I had, we had electric at our first house or two, but I've gotten to be a gas snob um, mostly because of how quickly I can adjust the temperature. Um, you know, there's a lot of lag with, with electric. 
Mm-hmm. Um, plus, it makes me feel all manly when it goes whoosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can cook up your corn tortillas really good on a gas cooktop. You can. I also, I finally broke down and used the griddle. Like I've had, I don't know how many gas cooktops and I've never used that little griddle thing. Mm-hmm. And the boys and a couple of their friends were over and I was doing pancakes and I finally broke out that griddle. I don't know why it has taken me this long to realize how freaking awesome those things are, but I'm never going back. Bacon, <laughs> eggs. I mean, there's a reason every greasy spoon in America cooks on a griddle. I'm embarrassed it took me this long. I'm thinking about just converting my entire cooktop into one flat top. Uh, they make a like stainless steel thing you can uh, slap on top. Uh, the one I've got goes over two burners, mm-hmm. and I yeah, this get... is one that this is one that would do all five. That's like, what I need to hear. That's yeah. what I need. I need like a Waffle House size. Uh huh. There's parts of this country that doesn't know what Waffle House is. I can't Bless imagine your hearts. They're yeah, like I mean, look right? it up. What's that? They're like everywhere, aren't they? Uh, last I checked, they're only as far north as Philly, and oh. west is pretty much along the Mississippi. I think. Oh, um, I know they're all the way up into Minnesota, so yeah. Well, uh, but I, I'm not sure where Philadelphia falls. Yeah, over. where that line is, I don't know. But <laughs> there's whole swaths of of ungodly country that doesn't have Waffle House. But yeah, look, type meme and Waffle House into Google, you'll find some good stuff. Yeah, yeah. But they cook everything on a giant flat top, and it is. I've now understand it's what God intended. Yeah. Uh and you can get Cage Daily Knives at Northside Cutlery in the Chicagoland area. Talk to to Kevin there at Northside Cutlery. And also and get your knives sharpened there, too. For Guild Watch and Knife Shows, oh, I believe... Oh, hang on, hang on. Oh, hey, 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 oh. Breaking news. Breaking news. You're going to hear it here first. Hello, Mr. and Mrs. America. To all sea- sailing ships throughout the seas. Um... Blade HQ now carries dogwood custom knives. Oh, on the on the site now? Uh, it will be by the time this airs. Blade HQ. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, now we can talk about Guildwatch and knife shows. Yeah. So I believe this will go up after the uh, November 19th Greenville, South Carolina Custom Knife Makers Guild show uh-huh. uh, at Dano's shop. Uh, but so if, if it, y'all weren't there, you losers missed out. Yeah. Should be a good time. Well, yeah, I'm sure think, we'll talk about it again when Dan gets back from yeah, Croatia. I think Hudson and chef Ralph are going to come out and cook for us again. So regardless of anything else, it's worth showing up just for the food. Yeah. Um, chef Craig was going to try to be there, but he's got to do a wedding. Apparently he's got to pay bills. I don't know. It's stupid. Yeah, but we'll yeah, have Hudson fun. and Chef Ralph there. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be lots of good food, no matter what. Uh, that there will be. <laughs> shout outs and gear talk. Want to or uh, shout outs and gear talk? Want to do a sponsor for that one? Oh yeah, you know what? Look at you. See, that's the reason you're the brains behind this operation, and I'm the looks. <laughs> okay. We're going to go with Jance Knife Supply. Jance Knife Supply, for all your knife-making needs, remember to use discount code KPGRIP for 10% off all handle materials. 
We've talked about Jantz. You guys should know by now, especially the hobby makers, the guys that are just getting started or the guys that want to just try a little bit of this or a little bit of that. They probably have one of the most extensive catalogs of materials. There's people that have got more handle materials. There are people that may have more pins, but knife making materials in bulk that you can get in ones and twos quantities. I don't know if there's anybody that's got more than them. Yeah. I was talking to Carlin uh, of Eastern Roadside Creations, and he was telling me about this Zam polish, Z-A-M. It's like a... Shazam! Yeah, it's like a polishing compound, and he was telling me to use it on some 600 grit cork belts. And uh, I haven't used the polish yet, but I happened to not have thrown away a couple of my cork belts that I bought way, 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 way back when from Phoenix Abrasives. And uh, that seemed to give a pretty good final, final finish on the Magna Cut. So uh, I'll keep you guys informed on that a little twofer there. You've done kind of a a pretty large batch on Magna Cut. Are you still getting those kind of ghost patterns in it? I haven't seen like really any ghost patterns at all. Mm -hmm. So, Um, because I've still, um, your Kephart has got that those little. Whoa. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> Rock and roll. That's a phone ringing through to a laptop that's in this room that I'm Hey, Kyle <laughs> understands. You wait till I get a text message and you hear the ears shattering. Ding. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dan's, Dan's text message is super loud. Um, You said my Kephart has a, like, ghosting... Pattern? Yeah, it's got some of those little those little ghost patterns that, uh, man, the more you polish it, the more they kind of showed up. So I was just curious. You didn't get any in your batch? Uh, not with my, like, 400 grit uh, then to scotch belt. Uh, yeah, no, at 400 grit, you would have seen them. Yeah, I don't remember <laughs> seeing anything. Cool. All right. <clears throat> That's just Maybe. one of those things I'm kind of filing away. Nobody knows, well... Laren didn't have a good answer and specialty metals didn't have a good answer. So that's one of those things I've just been kind of keeping an eye out to try and see when it does happen, when it doesn't happen. Yeah. I haven't seen it Um, on this big batch. I used baby powder in with my stainless foil. Um, Be careful when you do that. Cause if you put too much baby powder in there, uh, those packets like really puff up and it broke a ton of my little, ceramic rods in my blade fixture so do you have any trouble do you have any trouble getting them in for plate quenching no when it gets up to temperature it seems to like oxidize all out it's when it's coming up to Mm. temperature like uh puffs up like Mm. to like a thousand and then it like all oxidizes and condenses and sucks back Mm. in oh it sucks Uh, back in yeah because I've had them puff up and they stay puffed up. So then when I try to plate quench, I got this big puffed up envelope that I'm trying to, you know, no, I haven't had three that. quarters of a second to try and get it down into the plate. Yeah. So I ended up having to do like take out every other little ceramic pin on my blade holding fixture um, because they were puffing up so much because I had already, I didn't want to rewrap like 30 something packets. So be careful on how much. 
powder you put in there if you or, if you end up using some baby powder or use ZT1100 from Duffy Industries. Yeah. You want to tell us about that, Dan? Yeah, so a a, a couple of warnings. As y'all know, I've been preaching the ZT1100. Um there is some people out there talking about that it's okay to store it in schedule 40 P- PVC. They are liars. They're not just damn they're not just liars, they're damn liars. <laughs> Don't believe them. You will ruin an entire <clears throat> quart of uh, ZT eleven hundred. Uh, I was. How would you know it, that? Um, because <laughs> I came up with a great idea of putting it in a two inch tube. Because I've been on small batches using the sprayer. By the time I spray them and clean the sprayer and all that, I could have just done foil. So for small batches, I've been dipping them, and I got the idea of making a, a two inch cylinder dip tank, especially for my. My longer knives, the volume just worked out better that way. Mm-hmm. And it worked great on the first couple. And then I came in on Monday and the bottom of the tube was kind of deformed. And I, I did some some really upper level math. And I figured out that if if the pipe had already deformed, then the the compound was compromised. And I just... I put it in the trash can and watched it just slowly deform more and more. So I, that was like 75 bucks worth of uh, uh, antioxidation lacquer that um, went in the trash can. So Bummer. learn from your old Uncle Dan's mistakes and do not put uh, ZT1100 in Schedule 40 or 90 PVS, PVC. Okay. Uh, you're going to want to use metal tubing for that. Okay. And you probably want it to be welded, not just uh, threaded, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, or glass. I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to say a glass would be great, although trying to find like a graduated beaker or something from the, the Kim Supply Store. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I think I'm going to do is just go down to the muffler shop and get them to get like some two and a half inch stainless steel muffler pipe and weld a plug on the end. Dan. Do they have any glass blowers in Greenville? You know, actually, we have several. You should probably talk to them about like blowing you a a little rectangle or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I tried to keep it together. <laughs> um, what did you should what, ha- you should have them make you a custom <laughs> a custom glass uh, graduated cylinder? That would be awesome. Now, there's a 100% chance at some point in the near future I'm going to drop a knife and crack it, but... I, have them make another one. Have yeah, I, I might have them make them a couple, because there's just something, Dan, about having a custom-made glass. Man, I wonder if they can do, like, the swirlies in it for me. Like yeah. the... Um, yeah, this is, like, 14 plus. I can say bong, right? Like Maybe. the old... The, like the... The, yeah, the, the high school swirly glass. I mean, not high school, college. I mean, uh, adult. <laughs> you could have them do Milly Fiore if you wanted. Oh, I imagine I'm that would get that. pretty pricey, though. Yeah, well, you know, nothing is too good for me. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta get those uh, those expenses high for the end of the year. You know, if you have any money left over, you're a sucker. <laughs> Okay, so um, 
Oh, and I am going to throw in on the ZT1100, make sure your steel is super clean. Uh, Get all of the die cam off. Um, I learned the hard way, uh, my pinholes. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't get down inside the pinholes really well. And, you know, it's it's a lacquer. And there was a little bit of die cam in, inside those pinholes, and it ran when I dipped it, and I, I had some issues. So you got to make sure acetone, uh, lacquer, thinner, something. Make sure you get everything off of that steel before you treat it. Maybe let it soak in some acetone for a little bit or something? Uh, maybe, or at least a good wipe down. I've had good luck with just a, a paper towel that's kind of saturated and just kind of work around all the holes and that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, but when I get it good and clean, man, 1900, 2000 degrees, I've got just a, a film that comes right off and it's beautiful. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Talk to your local uh, glass artiste. Artisan. Artisan. You know, one artisan working with the other, a little synergy, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Maker to maker. Maybe you could even have them like uh, put a KP in the side of it, mm. or a, or a dogwood uh, flower. Maybe both. Yeah. Maybe a KP inside a dogwood flower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now we're now we're cooking with gas. Yeah. Alrighty for <laughs> uh, for my first going. shout out uh, for Brent Kramer. He is Brent underscore Kramer underscore knives underscore lcp on instagram and uh he does he's doing some really cool stuff he's also selling some really cool vintage rag micarta stuff he's doing a lot of cool slip joint things uh got a lot of like little um kind of showing all the little parts and components and stuff as he's putting them together and stuff too super cool uh maker making some really cool things uh, he's got 974 followers right now. So let's try to Come get on. those numbers up for him. Let's, let's get him over a thousand. Yeah. KP crew, KP family. But what are we calling ourselves? Have we, have we come up with a name yet? No, that was your department. KP posse. KP. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I like posse. Yeah. All right. You know what? I'll work on it. Feel free to add your suggestions in the comment section. <laughs> um, most uh dan at dogwoodcustomknives.com that is dan at dogwoodcustomknives.com for all your cutlery needs <laughs> and I, then uh my second shout out is another guy that i found virtually at the same time doing a similar thing craig uh brosman i believe is how you say his last name brosman uh he's craig brosman on instagram uh he's got 1151 followers <clears throat> right now um, he was showing some, some cool things. Wait, that's more uh, than me. He doesn't need knives. any more followers. What was that? I said, that's more than me. He doesn't need any more followers. He's, he's good. <laughs> I think you're, I think you're like over three. Am I really? Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's doing a lot of slip joint stuff and a lot of these like loveless type patterns, uh, with a lot of stag, uh, some Macartas and stuff. Um, he was showing how he soldered up a, guard that was super cool check him out he's making making some cool stuff and showing some some good stuff for us knife makers yeah and i'm a sucker for slip joints i'm not ready to to take on all the technical aspects of making them 
but it, it's probably because it was the first knife I ever got, but I'm, I'm a sucker for a slip joint. Yeah. I want to make one eventually. You will. Hopefully after, hopefully after Christmas. The engineer in you cannot resist. Yeah. Um, I really feel like I need to get a mill, though, but yes, I think I'm, yes, I'm going to just have to suck it up and do it. Uh, do it at somebody else's shop for a couple of things that I need the mill for. Yeah, that, that's reasonable. What better reason to have a, a, a podcast for knife makers other than to leverage that fame to be invited mm-hmm. into other people's shop? Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> hopefully, uh, hopefully I'm going to uh, Peter Martin's shop uh, soon. So That's going to be awesome. Yeah. Uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, Mad Max Custom Knife Scales. I talked about them a couple of episodes back. Um, y'all know that I drank the Kool-Aid really deep on Mental Co. They were doing some really cool micarters and that kind of stuff, but um, the company, they couldn't keep it together. They had some issues, um, especially around customer service, and it kind of came apart. And I stumbled on this guy. And I think I've put the pictures up. If I'll definitely repost them. I've done a couple of pieces with his. Uh, the last one I had was at the Blade West Knife Show. It is every bit as good. I would at this point be comfortable saying better than the stuff that Mentalco was making with way better customer service. There's still a little bit of slippage, which, man when you're trying to align a hundred sheets of paper with epoxy, you're going to get a little bit of that. I don't know if it was because the pattern that I was doing was so busy, but I finished it out to about 2000 grit and I didn't get any ghost lines. Like it was nice, clean. Uh, I'm going to get him to do some uh, pinup girls for me so I can bring those back. Mm -hmm. I was really impressed with the density I was really impressed with the consistency. And like I said, the the couple that I've done so far, I didn't get any ghost lines in them. Now you got to step it up, you know, maybe 200 grit at a time, take it up to about 2000 grit. And then I did a, uh, a green compound polish on it. Mm-hmm. And the number of people that were running their hands across it, expecting it to have a, a cloth texture was impressive. He's also working mm-hmm. on a random orientation kp logo uh for some handle scales for us so he also uh, that's going to be a pretty cool like uh we're actually making this collaboration thing between dan and me work so you mentioned it i'm going to head and ruin the surprise he just sent me to that rather than the, the kp bomb all over it it's the kp logo but it's small enough to fit inside the profile of one of our handles mm-hmm. and we've got two sets so I feel like we, we need to do a, a KP specific uh, collaboration. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think right. we should definitely have something for blade show. That, that sounds like a timeline I could probably make. You got to right. start on it early. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to throw out shop rolls and then, you know, we might skip Dan Brant's. Like I'm ready to get to the meat and potatoes on this. Maybe I'll okay. do a quick one. Uh, I've started doing the, the shop rolls of sandpaper for hand sanding sponsored by uh phoenix abrasives phoenix <laughs> abrasives the superior abrasive company when you want to abrade somebody you want a phoenix abrasives yeah uh, that they made your they made your idea happen 
they did. So it turns out it maybe somebody else might have had the idea before me, but um, I've got it in a couple of different grits, and it has worked really well. Um, it's really efficient. It's one and a half inch wide by 15 yards of sandpaper. So rather than cutting up sheets, I now just have rolls on a shelf and I peel off a link that I need. I tear it off. I wrap it around my sanding stick and I go to town. Yeah. Saves time on cutting stuff up and it's cheaper. That's right. I use my sanding mm -hmm. buddy, both the, the black hard one and the white mm -hmm. soft one. And then just a yep. regular. Um, it's working really well. We are going to try and see if it's going to be cost effective. We're going to play with using some more, some more aggressive grits like um, the ceramic grit. Okay. So it may be in the near future, you will have the option of getting shop rolls and ceramic grit. Those of us that are working in the particle steels and that kind of thing. Nice. For, for the same reason you want all that aggression on your, your belts, you're not going to be able to get it for your hand sanding materials. Mm-hmm. We're going to play a little bit and see if at the hand sanding level, if it's if the benefit from the ceramic outweighs the significantly greater cost. So I'll let y'all know how that goes. And if they wanted to save 10% mm -hmm. on their order, what would they use? Uh, they would use the discount code Kate. that I'm going to tell you in just a minute, but not yet. It's going to be, are you ready? Get a pen and paper. Here it goes. It is. KP10. That is KP10. Kilo Papa 10 for 10% <laughs> off your orders. Also remember, they now have the Broadback incinerator belts in 36 grit. Yep. That's kind of old news by now. But. Hey, you know, there are people that are just now hearing this podcast. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, I don't want them to feel left out. Yeah, if you're using those uh, higher end particle steels, mm -hmm. uh, the incinerator belts seem to really be worth it. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit of a convert. Um, all right, I've got a lot of rants built up, but I feel like we we really need to get to the, the guest at this point. Yeah, he's clearly getting a little bored and frustrated. He's probably as uh, as ADD as I am, but I took my Adderall late today, so I'm good. <laughs> uh, but I am gonna I'm gonna go short. I'm gonna I'm gonna rant on this a little bit more, but it kind of hit me the other day. I'm 48 years old. Um, the knife makers that are my age and older, you need to pay attention to this. The younger guys, y'all are going to get it. I struggle with the concept of friends and relationships online, like social media, that kind of stuff. At my age group, that that's like advertising. That's that's the little bit that you put out so you can find. The internet to me is like where you go for research or. Social media is where you can find somebody that, yeah, that guy does the thing that I need. And then you reach out and you, you contact them and you talk and that kind of stuff. It, it, us older makers have really got to realize that, uh, for lack of a better term, online friendships, social media interaction, the generations that are younger than us, they make friends who they never actually see. Um, They've got friends that they may ever, never actually speak to in a voice way, but it is a meaningful form of communication for a lot of the younger generations. And 
if you're going to be successful in the modern market, you really have got to change your way of thinking. You've got to realize that you don't check your messages two or three times a day, that, that people have conversations, that they, they exchange information in these short little bites throughout the day. And that is just the way the majority of your market is going to communicate. That's the way they're going to interact with you. And this really is a, an adjust or die kind of thing. It's, it's something I've struggled with. That it's just not the way I perceive interacting with people. But I'm going to give it a try. Y'all have got to give it a try. Uh, this is a little bit about a, a teaser, a, a segment coming soon. Um, old man tries to make reels. That's going to be me um, <laughs> stealing some of Kyle's uh, shop trick of the day. Yeah. Uh, ideas, because I've seen some of the interaction that he's having, and I realized that there's a lot of people that, that that's how they're going to interact. That's how they're going to get to know a maker. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to give that shit a try when I come back. Yeah. Uh, feel free to, to, to check out, if nothing else, for the comic relief. Yeah. It's been it's been fun doing those knife maker tips and even some of the some of the stuff in the knife maker tips, even though it's not like the knife maker tip itself. Uh, like I put those little uh, stainless or dowel pins yeah. in when I drill my holes. I when I drill a hole, I put a dowel pin in. Drill the next hole, put a dowel pin in. Make sure everything stays uh, lined up. But I I put like a little piece of micarta or Delrin uh, tubing on the end, and I had like a dozen people message me and like. What what'd you put on the end of those pins? Uh, so it looks like I'm actually be doing a a run of those pins. So I ordered a hundred oh, dowel nice. pins, an uh, eighth inch and three sixteenths. So your your cross cut sled for uh, pins was a good idea too. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna tweak. I'm gonna tweak it a little bit though. I'm gonna put a uh, a T nut with a uh, bolt at the end. Okay. So I can adjust the depth of the hole. Mm-hmm. Because I know you cut everything at a, at a maximum length, mm-hmm. but I do a lot of different thickness handles so to save material. Yeah, uh, cost. Uh, I'm going to do mine so I can adjust the depth of the hole. So for my thinner handled knives, you know, I can crank that hole down to say three quarters of an inch. For my bigger knives, I can open it up and adjust how long a pin I'm making. Yeah, yeah. I just cut them all to one and a quarter, and that's uh, what they all get. Yeah, and I had the knee jerk of, damn it, Kyle, save that shit for the podcast. Like, that's the whole point of the podcast is to teach knife maker things. And then I realized that there's probably people, there's that one dude that won't listen to the podcast, and this is the only way he's going to hear it. So, yeah, I started doing some of the collaborator stuff with, uh, so it's on my my account in the the podcast uh, page. So, trying to get a little more interaction going on on both places. And who and uh, which of our phenomenal sponsors has brought this section to us? Let's do Atlas Materials. Uh, they're your one-stop shop for uh, anything composite handle related. They've got anything from canvas micarta to the crazy fiber to Elfrin uh, imitation ivory, uh, rock stone composites, and uh, Juma and Jumanji. Got it right, first try. <laughs> <laughs> And Jumanji material. Man, people went nuts for that dragon scale pattern at uh, Blade West this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Elfin, um, important to know, it actually is FDA approved for kitchen use. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, 
which is a huge deal for chefs, by the way. Yeah. And looks really cool on some slip joints and stuff too, by the way. It does. Um, All right. You want to introduce our guest? I do. So our guest was, I originally became aware of him when he was managing the Knife House Phoenix, which was a huge uh, knife retailer. This is going to shock you. In Phoenix. <laughs> um, they are also known, the Knife House in general is known for really phenomenal sharpening. Uh, I had the fortune of actually, I've known of Corey for a while. I had the fortune of actually meeting him at Blade West this year to find out that he is now, contrary to all better judgment, a full time knife maker. So tonight we're going to have the great chance to pick the brain of a professional sharpener and a full-time maker that came over from the retail side. So I am looking forward to getting some, some hot, hot tips on how to sell my stuff. How are you doing tonight, Corey? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Yeah, yeah. I'm out of vodka, but you know, the rest of the show will be fine, I'm sure. <laughs> but don't, don't have too much vodka before you get on a plane. The pressurized you know, cabin apparently uh, affects you a little bit more than uh, you would think. It's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> Side note, the cabin of a plane is as dry as the Mojave Desert as well. Really? Oh, yeah. You get dehydrated as a mother on a plane. Hmm. Interesting. Especially if you're pounding all those free vodkas free vodkas you fly in first class or what no <laughs> you don't drinks aren't free on the plane for you nope can't say i've ever had a free free alcoholic drink really yeah i did i did one time my my they switched what plane we were in and my seat ended up in first class i, mm-hmm. I didn't pay for first class but I ended up in first class and i they had us sit on the plane first like and I was like, this is a really weird experience. And uh, the waitress came, or the stewardess came over and said, would you like a, would you like a soda or anything? It's like, yeah, like a, or a Diet Coke would be great. And she like goes, uh, would you like the can and the, the cup? And was like, like before we're even like in the air, <laughs> she, she goes, yeah. I was like, wow, you guys, people are really living it up up here. Yeah. I don't know. They, they every time I've flown, they, they, they have the cart of, of free drinks that they just leave in the aisle. Hmm. Like they roll it up and then they just walk off and leave it there. Hmm. Um, and so I just pick up a handful of drinks from the, the, the cart. No, that's, they don't do that for you. Not for me. Huh? Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, Dan, Dan, Dan. All right. Uh, so our first, our first question we usually always like to start with is where'd you grow up? I grew up in an eastern suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. Really? Uh, another Midwest boy. Yeah. Yep. I've got beautiful, beautiful gray yeah. Cleveland, Ohio. I've got some family that lives in Ashtabula and all over Cleveland Bless now. You. So then Ashtabula, is that, I think that's like eastern, right? Northeastern on the lake. Yeah, it's just like yeah. one of the last cities before you go into Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, I've I've, I've been through there as a very young boy, but um, I moved to Phoenix at the age of eighteen as soon as I graduated high school and 
could get to somewhere with some sunshine than I did and okay. have been have been here ever since. Why so why did you decide to go to Phoenix? Uh you show up and there's sunshine and palm trees and it's a young city and I don't just mean people. I would say there's it just seems so clean to me and all, all the buildings were new and it, it just looked different. You have the mountains. A lot of people think of, you know, it's just this desolate desert. And uh, you look at it, it's kind of like a little oasis when you're flying in, it's little mountains popped up all over the place and palm trees and green and a bunch of lakes. There's a lot of lake stuff to do here and hiking. And if you want to see snow, you go two hours north and get to Flagstaff. You're in the snow. You can be, you can be skiing in the morning and you can come back to Phoenix and have 70 degrees in the evening. So it's, it's a beautiful place to live. And it gets really hot in the summer and I'm learning now, what was I thinking going full time as a bladesmith forging in a cold (laughs) board when it's 118 degrees in Phoenix in July. And you're like, it's too hot to forge, but can't say no and not go out there and do it. Let me tell you about, let me tell you about the joys and the wonders of the canvas kilt. Yeah. Or, or just stock removal. Yeah, you know, well, so yeah, but <laughs> stock right. removal will get surprisingly warm as well when you have uh, thousands of little bits of burning metal flying around, and in those moments, a nice cross breeze can't replace it. You know, my shop gets kind of disastrous when I'm working and finishing up projects, and sometimes I find myself like tripping over something in the middle of my shop while I'm holding a big knife. I'm like, this is, this is bad. I've got to, I've got to spread things out and get more organized. I just feel like a kilt wouldn't be the best for me. Yeah. I I can't get behind the kilt, Dan. Sorry, Mm -hmm. bud. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't let you behind me in a kilt either, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. Uh, I'm telling you guys, it's freeing. All right. What was what was your first knife? Looking back, I think my first knife it had to have been a Swiss Army pocket knife. I think that's probably pretty much everybody's first knife cuz it's something that has other tools on it, kind of a multi-tool with a blade. But the first pocket knife I can really remember, or I should say the first knife I can really remember uh, I don't know if it was like an old Henry or a case mm. or it was a slip joint and it had two or three blades on it. If I can recall, it had, it had like a sheep's foot blade and it had a little pen blade and it had some dyed bone handle. And my dad's cousin, who I just considered my uncle, uh, he's a little older than my dad, but always hanging around, kind of a wild guy that likes to tell funny, raunchy jokes. He had given it to me, and I had to have been eight, nine years old, maybe seven even. And it was really cool. And I can remember, you know, your parents giving you a knife, and it's just like the Christmas story movie where it's like, don't shoot your eye out. So they give me this little pocket knife and like, don't cut yourself. And of course I was the type of little boy to always have like a lizard or some sort of 
terrarium or aquarium in my room and have a snake or a lizard or something in it. And I remember it had like the little circle that you would cut out to put like a watering can down in. And and I tried cutting that out with this knife. And of course I slipped and I stabbed myself and I still have the scar on my thumb. And I, I think I hid that from my parents and didn't tell them like, you gave me that knife, and of course, I stuck it through my thumb. Probably on the first week you've given it to me, but that was that was the first knife I ever had. And in the development that we lived in, it was a new development, and everything around us was forest. So across the street there were homes, and behind those homes, properties was just forest and as a little kid i would basically wake up in the morning and i would be out in those woods trampling around and finding the creeks and getting dirty and catching snakes and making wooden knives and spears and doing all the the fun stuff you know a little boy should do yeah so i would say that's it all started like that and uh, i don't know that i thought much about knives again i always kind of liked them but i don't think i thought much about them again until um later in my teenage years when i when i got into cooking and then and then it kind of took a turn in the style of knives that i was interested in or looking at anyways then things got dark and expensive yeah not right away (laughs) um or at least yes they did in my early 20s but not on knives yet right (laughs) uh that's a different Uh, podcast dude yeah, that is a yeah. That's a different story for another time. But Thank you. I found my way to I found my way to cooking and culinary school, and um, I had always cooked. I had restaurant jobs in high school. I didn't realize you were formally trained. Yeah, so I was. I find it it was an interesting experience. I. I enjoyed it. I don't know that it's the path for everybody or that it necessarily needed to even be my path. But I had been cooking for so long and it was always short order cook jobs or prep cook jobs at chain restaurants or family owned places. And I was working at a bar when I was 19 or 20. And I had I always had two jobs if I wasn't in school. Kind of one of those I'd work at nights at a bar or I'd cook. So I had a restaurant job and I had a bar job. And one of the bartenders was a chef. I'd like just gotten out of culinary school. And to me, was working at this restaurant that was doing stuff that I had never even thought about. And he kind of would talk to me about it. Um, and he got really excited. And it, it kind of piqued my interest in culinary school. And just thinking that the next level of of restaurants the path was to get your foot in the door would be culinary school and it was great um i learned a lot and it's just the fundamentals kind of i use it as a a parallel to i'm a member of the american bladesmith society and i don't think that any or all knife makers need to do that it i just kind of like the concept of there being a, a group that will hold people to a standard and i think french cuisine or cooking should be the same right we should all know how to make a mayonnaise the same way before we start making other things you know that are mayonnaise so that's 
That's you call this Julianne? Like that's not Julianne. That's one sixteenth of an inch. Julianne is right. one eighth of an inch. <laughs> so I think that's really what it was for me, or or at least now looking back, that's that's what I look at culinary school as is giving you the fundamentals because I can remember the first fine dining job I had after or even still during culinary school walking in and I need you to go make this sauce and I'm like well I don't know. where's the recipe <laughs> like, what what do you mean you know it was one Let's of those places you where, to. yeah where you didn't uh, you didn't have recipes so um so yeah formally trained and I cooked in I would say fine dining and higher higher end establishments out here for maybe six or seven years before I just got just utterly burnt out. Yeah. So was that culinary school in Phoenix or? Yeah. In Scottsdale, Arizona culinary Institute. There's actually a few culinary programs here. I, I think a couple of them have gone by the wayside due to some uh, unfortunate predatory lending type situations, <laughs> which was a thing. And they've kind of been hey. discredited or, Hey, take on a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt so you can get a job making nine ninety five an hour. Oh my gosh! And it's the truth. I, I mean, my first—I know everybody's like, "Oh, back in my day, I made a nickel for working all day, right?" Like we just all sound the same as we keep getting older. But yeah, at ten ten something an hour at a fine dining job, and before I even got offered that job, I think I worked there for free, you know, staging or trying out for several shifts before it was like hey do you want to work here i mean it was really competitive at the time yeah. in phoenix in fine dining restaurants i look back now and every single person that was a line cook at that restaurant maybe other than me is now like an executive chef or a restaurant owner or you know and that doesn't always happen so hey, uh, you traded all of that in for the glamorous low-paying jo- life ambition of being a knife maker well not right away uh i did start i, I started wonder, sharpening knives nope nope you're jumping way ahead you <laughs> obviously didn't look at the show notes that's like line 12 and we're on three there's okay. a flow to this shit dude come on man <laughs> you skipped right past how did you meet your dog and why are they better than people well that's because <laughs> Uh, how did I meet my dog? I met my dog through, I think, a Craigslist ad. Oh, <laughs> it's one of those type of relationships. This, this, this is going pretty Dan uh, level. <laughs> it got a little dark, didn't it? <laughs> to be honest with you, I will say that I did not want a dog, but my wife and my daughter really wanted a dog, and I knew it was going to happen anyways. If I didn't get on board, I was going to have no say in the type of dog that came home. So I went along. But we have a Chihuahua, and he's a Chihuahua-Pomeranian mix. Yep, nope, it's not Dan anymore. Nope. (laughs) So that's about all the dog I can handle. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. And and if he's better than people, is still be still, that's, the jury's still out on that. He's he's a good little companion. He's he likes to sit by you and no one else is around. So I, I, I kinda understand it. And then at the same time, I'm the type of person that's like, Why are you so needy, dog? Why do you always have to be by me? 
I've always been kind of a, a cat cat person because they come and go as they please and it's honest, truthful loyalty from a cat. They either love you or hate you. Gotcha. Dogs dogs are if you feed me, I'm there for you. Yeah, I, that that seems pretty solid to me. Yeah. <laughs> you you've just encompassed the last forty eight years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh-huh. well, it's we are. There's there's some correlation there between uh, between but, us and dogs, right? But now we're going to get to the important question, the defining question, really the the one question that everybody tunes into this podcast for. How did you meet your partner, and where does that fall on the Dan Kyle scale? For those of you that are new to the podcast. Kyle met his wife through an online dating service with the intention of meeting the the love of his life, which he did. Dan met his wife by picking her up at her grandmother's wake, expecting a one night hookup and has now had nearly 25 years of blissful marriage. (laughs) Yeah, I had to put that. I think I fall somewhere in the middle. My wife and I met at a restaurant we opened in town in phoenix here called st oh, francis tell me she was front of the house you were back of the house it was 100 she was the bar manager yes and I, <laughs> yes so she worked in the bar and i was i was back in the kitchen slumming it up with some food and uh, beauty and the beast yep and i remember i would ask her all the time if she wanted to go out on a date for hot dogs and ice cream and she would always turn me down. It would always be, I don't eat hot dogs. It's too cold for ice cream. <laughs> how is it, how is it really cold for ice cream in Phoenix? Uh, I think at the time it was probably December or January. Yeah, or maybe I, she just didn't want to go out with me. So yeah, it was, only, it was only like 70 or 80 degrees. <laughs> right. I mean, that sounded more plausible than, yeah, you're a disgusting tattooed back of the house <laughs> that's pretty much what it was but i my mindset was you there's no way you're gonna last with me if you won't eat hot dogs and ice cream right like mm. of course i could ask you if you wanted to go to a nice restaurant anybody will go with you to a really nice meal yeah. but how many people are willing to go and eat hot dogs with you most people don't even like admitting they like hot dogs yeah i mean if you can't take a foot long then you obviously are not going to make it with me <laughs> That's that's gonna be a sound bite to save right there. <laughs> yeah, but uh but we but I, I think pretty much I can remember telling the chef owner of the restaurant that uh I was gonna marry that woman or I was gonna spend the rest of my life with her and a year later we were we were married. So it worked out. It's been eleven years now. We're coming up on our Coming up on our 12-year anniversary. So. Very cool. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, the, the next two, it's, it's a little bit of a combo question because we talked about you, you got into the culinary side. We already know that you were at the Knife House. So some combination of how did you get started slash what came first, uh, the Knife House or Sharpening? So I mentioned my first high-end fine dining restaurant job out of culinary school. And 
at that particular job, the chefs, one year for Christmas, decided they were going to, as just a thank you, buy all the line cooks some Japanese kitchen knives, and then they bought a set of stones. And and they weren't like crazy Japanese kitchen knives, but as a line cook to get that's pretty solid. Geez, a Suisin or a guy got a global or you get a Misano or, you know, they're just, they're real thin. They're unlike anything we've used. Cause I'm used to using this culinary school knife. That's about a quarter inch thick at the spine and fully yeah. convex. I mean, it was terrible. When your choice was, was heavy German or Vitronox. When, when somebody throws you a decent uh, Japanese blade, that's, that's pretty solid. Yeah, and you know all the Victorinox knives, they were either completely flat and were triangle shaped or they were <laughs> like or they had been sharpened so improperly and just towards the center of the knife that they looked like uh boomerangs almost, you know, just a big <laughs> frown all the way. I, so we know, got those and kind of the, the stipulation you... Go ahead, sorry. Uh, we're good. Go ahead. <laughs> the stipulation so what I was <laughs> all right, knock it off, Dan. All right, all right, all right. I'll behave now. You do have ADD. <laughs> I've got them all. Yeah, he's got all the letters, the alphabet. <laughs> the stipulation of those gifts was that we would take care of them, and then we were expected to have sharp knives. And the chef was—I don't want to say he was crazy, but he was—he was very into holding us to a high standard. And sharp knives was a part of it. And at this time, there was a, a DVD floating around the kitchen. And it was the, the master sharpener that was at Corin in New York mm. before Vincent took over. And um, I think it was Master Sugai was, was the sharpener. But anyways, he had a video. And at the time, Dave Martell, I think maybe had a sharpening video. But really... There was a sharpening video. Every went around. Everybody took it home, watched it. We had some shafting sharpening stones. And that, I just started to really enjoy that. And I started to already not enjoy cooking as much, but <laughs> liking sharpening. I would say I wasn't jaded right away. It took, it took at least four years for me to get really, really bent out of shape in the restaurants. Uh, but yeah, so that's kind of how the sharpening started. And then... I was introduced to Aton. He had a small shop. The Phoenix Knife House at the time was kind of in its infancy and would go in there on my day off and he would let me sharpen on the stones and I would get to pick his brain and he had been sharpening professionally already for a couple years and that kind of really changed my mindset on, hey, this is really cool and and I think I could do this for money. I think I could make this my job. And uh, yeah, that, that's kind of how it all started. I, I saw an opportunity and Aton was at the time, it was really great. And I, I just kind of talked him into, hey, I think you should hire me as a knife sharpener. You know, and mm -hmm. I was leaving a cooking job, a chef job, a sous chef job. I just was so burnt out. I didn't really know what was going to go on. And I don't know that I had any ambition at the time other than I just don't want to work 14, 16 hours a day. So I think my parents at the time were like, are you crazy? You're going to take a 
pay cut and go get paid by the hour to work at a small business. And I, there was so much potential at that business. Um, and, and you're not working vampire hours. Yeah. I was like, this is bankers hours. You, you have to readjust. You yeah. don't realize what it's like. You lose all your friends, the people that you used to hang out with that are used to getting together on Friday, Saturday, Sunday holidays. You're always, they just stop calling because you're never able to go anywhere. I would work, you know, you you go to work at 10, 11 a.m. You'd be there until 10, 11 p.m., depending on the type of restaurant, maybe later. You leave ready there, to you go drinks with, about midnight, one? Yep. And then you're up. And then when the sun comes up, you're going to sleep and you're doing it all over again. And that just is not sustainable. And I think everybody knows that that's a thing in the restaurant industry. And that, I believe it's starting to change. It started, you know, later in my cooking career, I stopped doing that and, and it really helped to start advance my cooking, obviously, but funny thing. Yeah. So, so, you, but, uh, so you went from culinary to sharpening and then through sharpening, that's how you got to the retail side at the knife house. So the knife house, yeah, was retail and sharpening. Mostly imported Japanese knives. Yep. And then over the last decade, uh, I think it was, I was going on 12 years uh, there. So sold a lot of knives. We had a lot of, a lot of cooks and chefs locally. And I would say in the last few years, maybe prior to COVID and then definitely after, but I think maybe a year or two prior it started to become almost like a destination. If people came to Phoenix and they were cooks or they were chefs, it was like, we got to stop by this knife place. There's not that many knife stores you can actually walk into and handle knives anymore. Especially the biggest selection. Yeah. And and the one thing I will say, the knife house has a giant selection of Japanese knives and and knives in general, kitchen knives, a huge selection of kitchen knives. And it's, it's impressive to walk into a place and see so many nice knives in one place. And you get to handle them. It's a great experience. Everybody's super helpful there. And if you hand- so, handicap it down to culinary knives, the number of brick and mortars gets pretty tiny. Very, very, very tiny. And the other interesting thing was it, it was all kind of done without a very large online presence. Which, which to me, me was amazing. Yeah. Um, so you were you were, at least in the beginning you were sharpening almost entirely for for chefs for the culinary world. I would say at the very beginning, I can't say the sharpening business necessarily was always mostly chefs, but probably, I think the clientele in general as a whole at first was maybe 90, 10, like professionals to home cooks. And then by the time that I departed, it was probably somewhere like 60, 40. Um, the sharpening service was definitely geared towards the professionals. I mean, it was, it was the Aton has such a high standard for sharpening. Um, and, and that was the one thing that really set that sharpening business apart from anything else in town locally was the waterstone sharpening 
And even that, once he developed his belt method of sharpening, it was just different than any other machine sharpening that was really happening in town. And there's a lot of mobile guys here. And it's just organically built off, I think, just, you know, providing high quality sharpening service and, and being really true to. At, the, at one know, time, Aton was the leading person that sharpened the instruments for a brisk. If you don't know what it is, look it up and you will appreciate how freaking perfectly sharpened that tool needs to be. And he was the the leading sharpener in the country. And that, that pretty much tells you everything you need to know about, uh, about his skill. Yeah. I, I've had the opportunity to sharpen several of those guys. <laughs> and it's one thing that I've got to say, you, you put I, a little effort into making it perfect, don't you? Yeah, it's time consuming. <laughs> it's time consuming. And and it's but hey, you know, the baby's not gonna say anything to you. <laughs> but one day he may come looking for you. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um No, so, so it was a very high standard for sharpening and the, and all the professionals I think caught on to that. And then of course, as cooking shows, food network. All these things start to get really popular. Everybody realizes my knives aren't sharp, right? Mm. And then it just organically grew from there. What's so, what's your basic setup for sharpening uh, kitchen knives? Currently? <clears throat> um, yeah, well, let's go with, because I guess we're going to really quickly, we're going to split in kind of two directions, which is belt sharpening versus stone sharpening. So I guess I'm going to have to ask, um, you know, for either one, uh, what's, what's your belt set up? What's your, your stone set up? Well, I would say my focus is water stone sharpening. Um, so I do, I do majority of what I do and what I promote that I do. I really don't even necessarily offer belt sharpening anymore. I, one of the things I wanted to do was, Scale back on the amount of time I'm spending sharpening. My focus is spending time making the knives, right? I know that sounds like, well, why don't you belt sharpen then? Because you can do it so much faster. But I just enjoy waterstone sharpening. And to me, if I sharpen 10 knives a day, I'm a happy person. I don't have to sharpen 60 knives a day. I could. Um, and, you know, so I mostly focus on waterstone sharpening. And my general setup is. As a professional knife sharpener, I'm under the belief through experience that when you come to me for sharpening, it is not a sharpening. It is a repair because you are already at a point where if you do your own sharpening for the majority of the time, it is beyond your capability and skill to get it. You're obviously not happy with your edge anymore. So you're coming to see me. So I start really aggressive. My, my little studio that I have does not have, I mean, I have a one by 30 belt sander so that if I have a bad tip repair or really big chip and I want to get something done for somebody same day, I can do that, but I try not to. I would say I start on a 400 grit stone. The 400 grit stone that I use the most is the vitrified diamond 400 grit stone from the knife house. Both locations carry them. Triple B handmade has the line on. Uh, his site, yep. um, those stones, that particular 400 grit stone, it, 
for me in my hands, it's it's like giving me a bell sander. So it gets through stuff really, really quickly. And it still leaves you a manageable scratch pattern to clean up afterwards. Unlike a 140 grit Automa or, or a, one of those electro-plated diamond plated plate stones, those are really aggressive at first. They put really deep scratches and then they're really hard to clean up. So that's the one thing I like about these bonded diamond stones that they cut and really fast and they, they don't leave be, those. They tend to be more consistent too, don't they? You don't get the, the 400 grit stone is 400 grit. You don't get the random deeper scratches. Yeah. I think a lot of that is, it has to do with, with breaking off the diamonds. You're pressing too hard on those plates. You're stripping diamonds off the abrasives breaking down. Now you have different peaks where on those stones, you're releasing some of that stone material but yeah, I believe you get a much, much more universally uh, consistent scratch pattern on those. So that's kind of where I start most of what I do. And then follow that up with, I really, I really like what Hap Stanley's doing at NanoHone. I really enjoy his diamond resin stones. They were a little bit of an adjustment for me. There is no diamond resin stone that sharpens like his diamond resin stone. So when you go from what you're used to in a ceramic stone or even even the green, green diamond stones that are a resin diamond stone, those feel more like a regular stone. And then I started playing around with those nanohone stones and they have that kind of what he calls the honeycomb matrix. And it's a softer resin, almost has like a rubbery feel to it. So they just don't have the same aggressiveness. But as far as having a flat surface and getting a consistent finish on a knife, I don't know that I found a whole lot that I enjoy more. I guess people could make an argument for the tactile feedback. You don't, it just doesn't feel like you're sharpening on a ceramic stone. And there's part of using stones where you kind of like the creaminess or the smoothness or whatever it is that you find you like about a sharpening stone that you use a lot. Maybe you don't have that, but they're flat. They don't dish. They're really consistent and they're all measured in micron. So they tend to polish higher than what the actual grit equivalent would be considered. Mm. It doesn't always correlate. So I use those. I follow up with a 25 micron and then a 10 micron at the moment has been the bread and butter finishing stone for me over the last nine months on my own. And I have all the ceramic stones and I, I wanted to keep things simple. I can get carried away. I like sharpening and I like stones and over my 17 or whatever years of sharpening, I've purchased or had an opportunity to work with so many different products. And I really like the idea of keeping your variables to a minimum in sharpening. And if you want to get really consistent results, you eliminate as many variables as possible. And I chose, when I went out on my own, I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carry one stone line. And I'm going to use that stone line as the sharpening. That's all I use in my sharpening service. Of course, as a professional, there's other things. So yes, I have a Japanese natural stone or I have personal stones in my collection that I have at my disposal. Because every knife will dictate 
if I need to use a different stone, if I'm sharpening a big single bevel knife with a large bevel that needs a lot of blending, you might like a softer, muddier stone for a kasumi finish or whatever. So I have other stones to kind of fill in those niche areas. But in general, I just, I tried to bring my focus to have the most consistent results. I use that 400, I use the 25 micron, I use a 10 micron to finish. And I, I've just been enjoying those nanohone stones. And I know there's a lot of other great sharpening products out there. And I think sharpening is 90 to 95% your technique. If you have yeah. good sharpening technique, you can get any sharpening stone that's out there and that's available and you can produce a nice working edge on your knife. Um, so 25 micron, what does that work out to on grit ballpark? Like around a thousand, I think. Thousand? Yeah, or 800. It's really hard, I think, to to do that. One, grit is not the same here, Japan. Yeah. Europe, no, all over the place. Gonna, Micron I'm, is, but roughly, it's a medium grit. It's on the lower end of a medium grit. And then it's 10 trying, micron would be a little bit finer. I was just trying to get an idea of your progression. So you're jumping from, from 400 to somewhere between eight to 800 to 1,000. Always, yeah. I In that course range, I usually will double. So if okay. I was working on a 140 or a 220, I probably wouldn't jump to anything higher than a 600, and that's even a stretch. A 600 to me is a really oddball stone. 400 would be my next. After 400, it can be anything from 800 to 1500 grit. To me, that's your medium grit range, and it's pick your poison. What do you like? As long as it'll remove the scratches from that coarse stone, and you like then moving on to a finer stone and you like the way that your finer stone removes the scratches from your bridging or your middle grit, then, then whatever you want to use is acceptable in my opinion. Yeah. I, um, I am learning that I've, uh, being a woodworker, I used, I got very focused on grit progressions. Uh, and I've realized that I have way, like I'll do a, a 300, a 600, a thousand, a fifteen hundred, a two thousand, and I'm I'm putting a lot of bridging progression in there that I'm, I'm wasting my time on. Like I didn't need to make that small a jump because I've got that that sandpaper focus rather than thinking of, especially with modern stones. Yeah, I think it's pretty common. I've known a lot of people that would come through the shop and, well, I've got an eight hundred and a fifteen hundred, and to me, I'm like, oh, this is the same stone. One's finer, but it'll still remove scratches from a coarse stone, a 1500 will or a 1200 will. And you, you don't necessarily need both. I spent several years, my progression was a one. And keep in mind, these weren't knives that just needed honing or were going to, if I could start a knife on a thousand grit stone and get a burr, I will. But in my opinion, most of the knives that come in, there's a certain amount of steel that needs to come off. We've got to get through that damaged edge. Yeah, Microscopically, you, you've got to recreate it. And because otherwise you're working on damaged steel that's already been honed and pushed back and forth and it's compromised. So we want to give ourselves a fresh, fresh edge. So 120 grit ceramic belt to an 800 grit vitrified diamond stone to a 6,000 grit finishing stone. 
And that's when I was sharpening the most knives by hand. That was my, that was my progression. Um, and it was, it was, it was scary how fast you can sharpen a knife. So you don't have to have so much of a, of a jump, but you do need to make sure that you can remove all the scr- scratches from the previous. You can get a knife sharp from going from 400 grit to 3000 grit, but it won't be as sharp with those 400 grit scratches underneath that 3000 grit polish as it would be if and, you hit something in the middle. And that that'd be really toothy, wouldn't it? Yeah, I yes, and, but you're almost spend so much time on the 3000 that you it's almost like you you polished off all the the teeth you that you would otherwise have. You'd be better off just deburring at 400 and leaving a clean 400 grit edge, in my opinion. So your your quick and dirty, you said, was a 120 belt to an 800 grit to a, a what? To something between three and 6,000, but at the time, it was specifically a 6,000 grit stone that I just, I just was on. This stone and I just had a relationship, and sometimes yeah. it's like that. Something just starts working for you, and you don't change it. When When things are working, you keep it. I've got one stone that just sings. It, I, I always get the blade to face right. Like it, I don't know why it is, but that that's my stone, and I'll never, I'll never give it up. Yeah, and sometimes things work for you that don't make sense or or work better than maybe they should, and just let the witchcraft, you know, be, and just keep using it if you're getting good results. As long as you're getting sharp edges and you're happy with the results, and they work, the knife works for you to its intended use then i tell people don't change it keep doing what you're doing um do you finish your edges with a, a strop or anything like that or do you, you know, 10 micron really, and 6000p done so this is a really debatable topic and generally yeah. speaking i prefer for kitchen knives to not finish on a strop Mm-hmm. I like to get my edge as clean as possible off the finishing stone. So I uh, found that a lot of people will use leather straps as a handicap to poor technique in burr removal and final honing or stropping their knife, right? Stropping for me is a technique. It's that honing motion back and forth, one side to the other, and you're lightly abrading until that burr falls off. Some people will not strop enough on the stone to get the burr weak enough or fall off enough, and they'll go to the leather and they'll strop a whole bunch to remove the what's left hanging on there. And now, for me, yes, technically, you just made that knife sharper by buffing because you have some sort of abrasive compound on that leather. You're buffing the teeth on your edge, but you're taking out the bite, like the toothiness of your mm-hmm. edge. So while it'll shave you great, it'll slice through paper without snagging at all. You can S slice through a piece of paper. You won't get any snags. Sometimes that edge, especially if you're up in the 6,000 grit range of finishing, three to 6,000 was always, and still I would say is kind of my sweet spot for a kitchen knife that I personally like. So when you're up around 6,000 grit, or even some 3,000 grits, it's already such a fine stone 
that I don't find this drop to be 100% necessary. If you like that, then use it. But I would encourage you to do as few passes as possible, maybe one, one or two on each side. Mm-hmm. Make sure your angle doesn't change and you're not putting a micro bevel with the strop because then the compression of the leather itself can almost ruin a nicely finished edge. You can almost and more to the that. point that just when you go to cut on, uh, you cut it something, you don't have that bite. It just kind of runs, or slides over the top of a tomato skin, but you know it's it's sharp. It'll shave hair on my arm, but you've buffed off all that. I guess all you would teeth. call it keenness. Okay, but I, I don't know if that's the right term for it. But yeah, you lose that bite and that toothiness. I like to call it grippiness. Like when I go to cut a piece of food, that knife should catch whatever I'm going to cut. Mm-hmm. Like it, it should touch it. Now I'm not talking about a really rough edge, like a serration that you haven't removed all your burrs. It should be real fine. And it should still want to grab. That's, that's how I've, I've operated. Now I do like a strop on a coarser finished edge. So if you're going to finish, Anywhere six, seven, eight hundred to twelve or fifteen hundred, that kind of coarse medium to medium range, then still get your edge as clean as you can off the stone. But you have to have such light pressure, you kind of keep creating that little burr as you're stropping to try to remove it when you're working on those lower grits or on that medium grit. So there it's nice to then have a strop and, and give a pass or two. It can really elevate a medium grit finish. You still have those more aggressive tooth structure from the medium grit stone. I, you, I find that that edge can hold up to the, the compounds a little better. Would and you then, use, that, would you use that, uh, that technique with some of the, um, the, like the simple carbons where you get the larger carbides where – Taking it out to the finer grits is is kind of a negative return that, you know, you, you're six, you're 800 grit stone, and then you go to a, a strop. Yeah, I find I find I really like it on some of the folders with the, the modern folders with what you would consider your super steels or your high alloy oh, really? steels. Okay. For me, uh, M390, I think, is a perfect candidate for a thousand grit finish and a, and a strop. Um, at the end of the day, I think it comes down to what everybody likes and how you want your knife to feel. When we use knives, they give us a response when we're cutting. We can get a feel, a feedback from it. I, I like to feel that I'm cutting something, and I think it's just still move through that object with ease. But I kind of like knowing it's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I will mention about straps is hands down the best stropping compound for the leather straps is the gunny juice by scott gun so i know they sell it at some of the online dealers i always used a polycrystalline or microcrystalline diamond mostly the like suspensions where you shake it up all the sediments on the bottom and you have a little squirt bottle and you're spraying it on your strop yeah and what Scott did was create a product that's that works infinitely times better than that. Honestly, it's uh, mm-hmm. it he's he's deionized it so the particles don't clump together. So 
if you have a one micron and it gets sprayed from a squirt bottle and it's not deionized or you haven't changed the magnetic polarity, I think is how he worded it. All the particles can clump up and a bunch of one micron diamond particles sticking together can leave a big ugly scratch in your edge and can make larger than, than one micron, right? So the, the way his compound works is all the particles push away from each other and you get the most uniform scratch, like the most uniform polish off of those compounds and leather. And you don't need to use a straw. You don't need to strop a whole bunch, one or two passes on each side. And it's the only compound I've found that really preserves the toothiness. So I would recommend checking out that product. And at first I was like, how could this be all that much better? And I tried that stuff and it was like, wow, this really is better. <laughs> it is different. So I would, I would say if you're going to use a leather strop, you can get, that's another rabbit hole you can fall down as well. What type of leather? Are you using Cordovan? Are you using horse hide? Are you using the suede? Are you using the flesh side or the skin side? Are you, you know, what? I used horse hide that was harvested on a full moon from a horse that was facing magnetic north on yes. a Tuesday. 100%. So that is a whole other rabbit hole. I find that I like simple cowhide. And I like it to have a little bit of a suede texture. Mm. So either sand it smooth to be suede feeling, or it just to I, hold some of the compound. Or? Yeah, it just kind of holds the compound nicely. I've used plain over and over. I actually just picked up some horsehide that has a, a suedeish texture, and it's sitting in my garage in rolls. I haven't. I haven't even cut straps out of it yet. That just shows you where I'm at with straps. I, I have a, a strop and I don't use it as much as, as I think a lot of people uh, would think I do. I, I really like coming off the stones as clean as possible. I really like the aggressiveness you can get off of a finishing stone. I I was late in life learning about straps. I, I grew up, you know, you finished on an Arkansas stone. Um used a piece of soft wood to take any burr off and that was it. I, I was, I was making knives before I found out about stropping. I'm embarrassed to say. Yeah. It was a huge revelation for me. The first time I used a strop just in general. And then over the years of running into maybe some other knife sharpeners who didn't really use leather straps. I was like, huh, you don't use straps? No. Yeah. Pretty much, them and, pretty much the only time I had seen them was at the barber shop when you see the big like ones off the the side of the chair. Um, and I think there's definitely situations where it's a must. A straight razor, I think it's a must. I mean, my mom had one that she used to beat my brother and I with. <laughs> that wasn't um, just a belt. There- no, well, dad, dad used the belt. Mom had uh, actually, truthfully, she had my knuckleheaded brother broke a fishing rod. He stepped on it and broke it about two, two and a half feet from the tip. Um, so dad took the eyes off and sanded it down and put a handle on it. And that's what my mom used as a switch. Woo. That sounds yeah, good. It, oh, it was fiberglass. It was indestructible. You could hear that thing coming. It would get a nice whip on it. Yep. Yeah. It was a twofer. Like it would hit you and then the tip would come around and get you. 
Uh, uh, we digress from my, my no reason to go into the closet of issues right now. Um, uh, is there a point of uh, diminishing returns when you get to sharpening? Like, I mean, you can get to, to an ocular surgeon edge, but is that going to survive contact with a cutting board? Like, at what po- I guess what I'm asking is, is there a point where sharp is enough? Absolutely. I, I think we could all just be happy using a medium grit stone and finishing our knives across the board for the most part. I think the intended use of the tool is going to dictate how high of a finish you want to go to. So for me, if somebody comes to me with a folder or a fixed blade, and it's their everyday carry knife. My approach is, how do you really use this? Are you the type of guy that just uses this to open Amazon packages and envelopes? Or are you the type of guy that maybe whittles wood or really goes out into the field and, and like uses this? Might need to cut a seatbelt or some rope. Hey, I cut string and slice apples. So then you could probably have a very fine edge. <laughs> but I, I always like to find that out. I like to find out the intended use no, for no. that individual so that I know. Like, if you tell me you want a mirror finish on your Victorinox, and mostly all you do is dice potatoes at a breakfast restaurant, I'm going to tell you why that's not the right edge for you. Yeah. So we'll, we'll be like, no, maybe we should just have a medium grit finish. You'll have a little more toothiness. It's a softer steel in relative terms to other things that are out there. You know, so um, I do think there's a point of diminishing returns. And I I think that it's it's really easy to want to have the mindset of, well, if 1,000 grit is good, then 3,000 is better, and then 6,000 is better than that, and then 8,000 has to be better than that, and then we're at 16,000 grit, and now we're at micron lapping films that are in the 30,000 grit range. Hey, and then you're you at Jason's night, one, one million. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. If, if you're not sharpening at one micron, are you really sharpening? Right. And if you enjoy sharpening and you just like, doing it to see the results that that progression does for you and your goal is to then move on to whittle a hair then i think you should do that and you should enjoy the process of knife sharpening my experience with knives comes from needing to use them and generally use them in a kitchen which means they're getting used very harshly for the most part at least a chef's knife or an all-purpose knife is I'm not saying everybody in the kitchen should be an absolute savage animal with their knives, but it is a fast-paced environment that is chaotic, and you're cutting several different types of foods, sometimes with just one or two or three knives. Not everybody has a knife for every task. So definitely the point of diminishing returns depends on what your intended use is. If you want to whittle a hair, then absolutely Take it up to 30,000 grit. If you need to cut a seatbelt with that knife, 30,000 grit is probably not going to, it's not going to be the right finish for it. Well, and even culinary, if you're rough butchering, you want a fairly toothy edge, but 
if you're out there slicing roast at the at the country club, you're going to want a, a really polished edge, not so toothy, so you get the the very clean slice. Absolutely. The perfect example of a kitchen knife that would need to go to 6,000 grit or above would be the slicing knives, your Yonagi's. Now that knife, 8, 10, 12,000 grit, if you want to finish it at that, you're cutting really delicate fish. And it's paper thin, and it's easy to destroy that fish, and it's already been cured, or it's been through some process, and you don't have a lot of it, and it's expensive. So. In that situation, it's it's necessary, and but that's a that's a scalpel's edge. Um, so, you, know, you eight inch kitchen knife, yeah. What's what what's the bracket that you're looking for? Like a um, let, let's say like a paring knife, and then your eight inch workhorse prep knife. What kind of where would you bracket those? I'll probably put them both pretty similar. I actually like a paring knife, pretty polished. But most of my finishing is between three and 6,000 grit. And I probably fall closer to the 3,000 grit range. And that just tends to be my happy place. Now, a lot of the stuff I finish in my sharpening service, when it's the Japanese knives or anything that you're, I would say, definitely above 60 Rockwell. But once you're above 58, 59, if you're with the Japanese knives, you have some shuns or miyabis or you know the more commercial Japanese cutlery. That stuff can go up to six thousand grit, and you can probably perform pretty well with it if that's what you like. Uh, for German knives, even the forged blades, Hankels, Wustoff, Fdick, things like that. Then I tend to fall. I I fall to that ten micron stone, which I think. People would consider it about 2,000 grit or 1,800, something like that. But because it's a diamond, it gives you a little more bite. And because it's micron size, it's a more polished. It almost looks more like a three to four or 5,000 grit polish on that stone, mm. but with some really nice toothiness. So I like that on the German stuff. I, I tend to stay down in the lower, you know, 1,000 no higher than three, probably not even three, one to 2,000. Because they'll get down. 2,000 grit's a weird grit also. If you're out looking at ceramic grit, 2,000 grit stones, some are sharpening stones. They actually cut and can create a burr like a medium grit stone. And then you have other ones that are just really fine and just polished. So that's kind of a wonky grit I always tell people to be careful with, really know what you're getting. Like with a 1,000 grit stone, you know you're always going to get a stone that can create a burr. Right with a three thousand grit stone, you know you're all, almost always going to get a, a polishing stone. Now there are three thousand grit stones that are pretty fast cutting out there, but generally speaking, you know what those two things are. Two thousand grit for me, from what I've experienced, has always been kind of a weird one. But that's kind of where I like to finish the German knives. Anyway. I uh, I was going to throw you under the bus wrapping up sharpening with a. Uh... You know, we'll come back to it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw you under the bus twice tonight because I'm just feeling that way. Uh, Miyabi versus Shun. Do you have a preference? Uh, we can take the fifth. We can, we can stop the recording. And no, talk we got to pick. We got to pick one. Well, 
arguably, I would say that I don't find those knives to either be true representation of Japanese cutlery. That being said, there are probably series of each of those that I find to be like, you know, they're all right. Um, but overall, I think the Miyabis are thinner blades. So I'd probably have to pick those. And I think those they stay a little more true to the profile of a Japanese knife in most cases, where the Shun is like a, is kind of that German chef's knife profile with that weird D-shaped handle. I will join you down on the tracks and also say that I repair more Shuns than every other brand combined. Like the, the chips there's, and chip Yeah, breaks. there's something about the corrosiveness of their VG-10 that I just do not understand why. I'm, you, that thing looks at water and it gets hitting. And it is, it is a serious, serious thing. Almost every 9 out of 10 that I see. Occasionally, I get the one-off customer that has shoe knives that don't have corrosion, hitting, chipping. It, everyone, like I said, I get more chips and tips with shuns, and everyone I've ever gotten, I've just had to completely redress the edge. It's a pretty common thing. <clears throat> okay, so now for the real throw you under the edge question to wrap up the whole sharpening segment. Um, do you lead with the edge or follow with the edge on a stone? Edge, edge trailing, one hundred percent, all the time. Edge trailing stroke. <laughs> Okay, I do thanks edge. for coming on uh, tomorrow. We'll have. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, I learned how to sharpen with an edge trailing stroke, and it's always worked really well for me. So I'm happy with the results, and I'm not going to change it. I understand that an edge leading stroke will cut steel faster at your edge. You're able to be more efficient pushing in. Towards your edge. I guess my issue with it is, and not even at this, it, it's not, I don't look at things this microscopically. But technically speaking, if you were trying to finish a knife and you were doing an edge leading stroke, you don't know what else is on your stone. And what, if you're pushing and you're doing an edge trailing stroke, you'll ride up and over any contamination that's in your water, whether it's particle abrasives from other stones. I am not a person that keeps my stones separate. I keep my 220 grit stone in the same bin of water that I'll keep my 6,000 grit stone. And I just rinse them down. I'm an animal like that. You are, you (laughs) filthy beast. Yeah. So you probably use the same cutting board for vegetables and chicken too, don't you? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Only cooked chicken. (laughs) So theoretically and technically speaking, Mm -hmm. I guess the thought process would be that your, your edge is going to, the behind your edge is going to go up and over whatever particle, whatever is there that could damage a really fine edge, as opposed to an edge leading stroke where, your edge could come right into contact. It's pretty microscopic. Are you really going to notice it? I don't know that I've ever, ever dealt with that. But I, I'm. There's a guy out there who's been sharpening for way longer than me, who sharpened way more knives than me. 
that that was his explanation and it made a lot of sense when i saw it and i'm gonna i'm gonna stick with that i fall back on there are a lot of ways to get to the same place and i have not been able to find a functional difference between the two i have been proven i've been proven wrong theoretically repeatedly but functionally i have not just had the skill to be able to tell the difference Finger placement and pressure uh, can have a lot to do with where your knife is actually grinding. So I believe that when you're doing an edge trailing, and I'm kind of that scrub, you know, Japanese style scrub back and forth sharpening, two fingers and towards the middle of the stone, and I'm pushing down as I'm pushing forward, and and I try to sharpen over that middle of the stone and I move the knife so that I know sharpening is taking place under my fingers there. When you're doing that, I believe that when you're pushing down, you're actually, you're, you're grinding more behind the edge than into the edge. Yeah. And it's going to give you a slightly, slightly lower angle because of your finger placement and because of the orientation and because of the way you're and I learned with more of a Western style that the motion is very similar to drawing it across the belt. That I'm I'm drawing the knife or pushing the knife across the stone and I'm pushing it forward and drawing it across. So I get a single stroke all the way along the edge rather than working one area and then moving it down. <clears throat> I think that method's fine. If that's what you're used to and that works for you, <laughs> I noticed. No, I, I mean, if you I want to do it wrong, it. you're you're welcome to. <laughs> it's not about wrong. It's about yeah. speed. It's about how fast can I get through damaged steel in a professional sharpening setting where time is money, and the more knives mm-hmm. I can sharpen, the more I get paid. So, I have found that that sharpening method probably wasn't as fast for me. And again, I just didn't learn that way. I just, the only thing I saw was a Japanese sharpening video and I picked up the knife and tried to emulate it. And then it just happened that the next person I met in sharpening was Aton. And that's how he was sharpening because he was hanging out in New York, fly on the wall in Corin, watching the same guy, but in real life, not on the video that I was watching on a DVD. So we already had sort of a similar sharpening method. And then it just kept going that way. Dave Martell his sharpening DVD was going around and he's been doing it for a really long time. And then at the time, think about when I first started, YouTube was like just happening. And the only person on there doing sharpening videos was Murray Carter. So I watched a lot of Murray Carter sharpening videos when I first started sharpening. And when I learned there wasn't such a thing as YouTube, um, yeah. Matter of fact, the cornerstone of my sharpening technique is 40 years of muscle memory. Um, it's the cornerstone of mine, too. <laughs> Everybody's is that muscle memory. The more you do it, the, the more the efficient you get and the more comfortable you get. The weird thing is when I was at the knife house, most of the hand sharpening, almost none of it was on folding knives. And I was really uncomfortable sharpening folding knives for a long time. And, and it was. I don't know, uh, several years back where I was just like, I really need to know to just be better and more confident with stone sharpening, large fixed blades and, and um, your pocket knives, your folders, all these things. 
folders were like the biggest pain in the ass for me to sharpen. They're small. Yeah. They can have way more curve to them. You've got plunge cuts. You sometimes have a little guard sticking off the end of that plunge cut that gets in the way of the edge of your stone. So you can't get all the way back on the cutting edge. You got to get that just, funky angle. Yeah, you really have to do things differently. <laughs> so I found those to, and, I, and I made it a point to really focus on those over the last couple of years and, and try to tighten that up. But at first it was my, my sharpening was all kitchen knife sharpening and, and mostly Japanese knives. So I think that has a big part to do with it. Japanese knife sharpening, that method works really well for Japanese knives. And since I sharpened so many different styles of knives on Waterstones now, my technique has evolved quite a bit and is, is really quite different than what I would say I started, how I started sharpening. It's just evolves. It just keeps evolving. And I do a lot of that singular stroke sharpening more for honing and always edge trailing. But it's just because it works for me. If, if yeah. edge leading works for me, I would do it. Yeah, well, and it's what I tell people is flat at the same angle every time it touches the stone, and you'll get sharp. You might be three to four degrees off of the absolute, but it's going to be sharp. Yeah, get get as flat as you possibly can if you if that's what you're trying to do. Don't have dished out stones that you're sharpening on that are giving you rounded edges. Have flat stones and try to stay as consistent as you possibly can and get the burr off all the way. That's and just I encourage people that are scared to sharpen to just start. Just start. Just pick something up and sharpen it. I can still have the two knives that I really, that set the foundation for my sharpening technique. I over sharpened. I sharpened all the time because one day it would be sharp and the next day it wouldn't. This was when I was cooking and I had just gotten my first Japanese knife and I hadn't really figured out the, I didn't know the science behind it. I just knew what I saw and I feel like I can emulate things like that. So I just was trying to emulate it and it wasn't until I met other sharpeners that really like turn turn my head to the here's why this is happening the thing started getting better but without over sharpening that knife and without doing that thousands of times just back and forth back and forth that technique that set the muscle memory to then set me up for success when i started to understand the theory behind sharpening for hand sharpening i tell a lot of people go get a cheap soft knife so, and a really coarse stone. So you get really immediate feedback. Um, that way, if you're doing something right, you know it immediately. And if you're doing something wrong, you know it immediately. That's an interesting take. I've never actually, I always talk people out of, out of starting with a coarse stone, but <laughs> mostly because I was selling knives and I did not want them to use one of their nice knives that they just bought. And come back in. Yeah, no, don't do that on a nice knife because you will absolutely screw up a blade. Go get a cheap Walmart twenty dollar, you know, fifty Rockwell knife. Or go to well, a our garage starter. Store. Our starter with the knife house was a. If you were going to learn sharpening, the first knife you were going to get a Victorinox. Yeah. And you were going to hand sharpen it, and you were going to belt sharpen it, and you were going to use it. You know, part of the part of sharpening is you have to also use it. You have to know what your results feel like. Yeah. It can't just be sharpen it and test it on paper. Well, if that's a kitchen knife, chef's knife, you need to go home and cook yourself a meal. 
you need to be able to understand how it feels on a carrot, how it feels on celery, how it feels on a tomato versus how it feels on a piece of protein. Cooked versus raw. And know the difference between a toothy edge and a polished edge and why they're different and how you use them. Yeah, but I do like that. I think it's definitely 400 grit. You get a core stone, you get a, you're going to notice right away because a lot of sharpening is small technical errors that compound mm-hmm. over time. And then the person looks at their knife and is like, wow, it's got a beak at the front or I have a heel that's really pointy and I've got a brown going through my blade. Now that doesn't happen overnight. It didn't happen in one sharpening. It's you've missed these areas over and over and over again. And now it's like, whoa, what just happened? Why is my knife like this? So I like the concept of of starting with real aggressive because you know if if you're sharpening too much at the heel or too much at the tip or too much in the center, your profile is going to be out of whack really quickly. You know, especially if you put a little sharpie on it, you make a couple of passes and you look. And if there's any sort of deformation of that clean line, if you've got a ripple, if you've got a bow, you're going to see it immediately and go, okay, I'm rocking on the stone or I'm I'm digging in here or uh, I'm slow coming up on the the upsweep of the tip. Like, you know, right away if you're screwing up or if you're doing it right. And then you can build that muscle memory. The Sharpie trick is is a must. Anybody that's getting started in sharp in sharpening should have a very wide or an extra wide Sharpie. I like the Magnum ones. I like to color yep. behind the edge also, just to make sure you're not laying it too low and putting scratches all behind your bevel. For those that don't know what we're talking about, if you take a Sharpie and color the edge, or I think we all agree, go up, you know, three quarters of an inch, an inch up the the blade, you mark that black. And then when you make passes on the stone, you will very clearly see silver versus black. You will very clearly see where you've taken steel off and where you haven't. And that'll let you know where you've sharpened, where you haven't. If you get waves in that line, you're probably rocking back and forth on your stone. Um, if that line, the height of that line isn't consistent, then as you're working from the flat to the upsweep of your tip, you're not holding it at the right angle. I mean, that's instant feedback. The tips of knives are one of the most, I think it's probably the most common area that I see sharpening technique go awry for people is not being able to follow the curve because a knife has a belly and a curve on its edge and it has that curve it rocks whether it's at 90 degrees or at 10 degrees so when you're sharpening that tip you need to make sure that you're either rocking up or or just lifting the the handle of the knife just to follow that curve and actually make contact with the tip it's probably the biggest biggest thing I see people losing their profile to either a really flat triangular shape or they get that beak at the tip of the knife and that's from not being able to to appropriately sharpen the tip and it is tricky at first a sharpie will will help it's hard when when you're sharpening too and you're just learning it's almost like knife making like start to finish the process for making a knife you only get to do one part. 
side by side. So you never really have an opportunity to get great at any one of those parts until you've made however many knives. And there's no, it's how do you focus that practice? I had a, a sensei in judo that used to say uh, a thousand times to learn it and 10,000 times to know it. Sure. And I found it's the, it's the same in sharpening. You've got to do it thousands and thousands of strokes to build that muscle memory, to lock in at the right angle, to, to follow the sweep right. Yeah, it's almost like you should just go buy a, a bucket full of knives and you work the right side of the knife until you're comfortable with the muscle memory. And then you work the left side of the knife until you're comfortable with that muscle memory. And then you start to put those bits and pieces together. Because when we go and play baseball, we learn how to hit a ball. We hit a ball over and over and over again, or we throw a ball over and over and over. And then you put all those skills together in the game. It's hard to do that on knives, though, because we can't do that with our tools that we use. We can't just sharpen every day or you're going to be buying a new tool in six months. And if you are just now learning to, to freehand sharpen, do yourself a favor. Learn with your dominant and your non-dominant hand. Um, 100%. You've got to be ambidextrous to be a great sharpener, in my opinion. Um, I am left-handed and I got in the habit that I did all of my sharpening left-handed and it has bitten me in the ass. Uh, I think if it comes down to just using your own tools, it's not that bad. But I had a really hard time sharpening left-handed knives, left-handed kitchen knives when I became, when I started sharpening professionally, it was a challenge for me and it was really frustrating and I just was never really happy. And I, the sharpness, fine. I was happy with the sharpness, but I wasn't as happy with the finish. And that's just as important. I, I want the knife to cut really well. But generally, if your edge looks really flat and clean, it's going to cut really well. So I was also worried about how it looked. And that was the standard that Aton had. It just had to be scratches were removed from the previous stone. There weren't any be double be facets anywhere on your bevel. It was flat and crisp. I just had a really hard time achieving that with my right hand on a left-handed knife. And so it was one of those things where I just forced myself to start learning how to sharpen left-handed. And you're still, your dominant hand is very much involved in the sharpening process when you're using your less dominant hand. So, And also, if you're just getting started, it's weird anyways. Well, and if, if you're going to be doing a lot of sharpening, your dominant hand will get tired. You will be glad that you can switch off. I just started trying to teach myself how to use my left hand in the forge. Wow. Um, <laughs> it's really interesting swinging a hammer with your left hand. It's, it's good and bad all at the same time. One of the great things about being left-handed in this world is... By the time you're in your teens, you're basically ambidextrous. Hmm. I think that lefties are always artistic people. I don't think I've ever met a left-handed person that wasn't well, particularly in our right mind. Well, it's it's an observation of mine, and and I noticed when I started doing things lefty, it definitely opens up another part of your brain, and you're able to do. A, more things and, and obviously oh well yeah you just started using another hand to do, you know but it does it kind of opens up it really does and uh 
yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, I'm sure it's, it's not a phenomenon. I'm sure there's a term for it and I'm sure doctors know all about it. The, the history channel's done a documentary on it. For sure. But it, it's, it's use It's worthwhile. Anybody, I encourage every and anybody, if you're going to sharpen or do anything, I, I wish I could do more things with my left hand or my non-dominant, but we work on it. We do what we can. Uh, so moving from the sharpening aspect of your life and into the bless your heart making aspect, um, I mean, we're going to touch a little bit on the, the middle section there. What what was the retail scene like? Um, should we should we throw in our last sponsor there before we? Uh... Yes, we should definitely mention Old Town Cutlery, the purveyor of the finest finest cutlery in the world that would be cage daily knives and dogwood custom knives for both your cutlery and outdoor needs you can find that at oldtowncutlery.com if you're dyslexic like me and can't spell for shit don't worry they own every possible domain if you can misspell their name and not get to their website they'll be impressed yeah and you can use discount code kp10 to get 10 percent off your order and they have got knife making supplies for full production and all sorts of your knife needs. They've got generic sheaths. They've got, I still don't think anybody has been able to beat their prices on West System adhesives. And we know I've drank the Kool-Aid on uh, G-Flex. Yep. Good stuff. And um, they have Starbond CA glue too. Yeah. Which I'm glad you reminded me. I need to, uh, I had an awkward moment when, um, I was out of accelerant. Oh, shit. All right. Um, I should have put this in shout outs or gear talk. I'm going to put it in a next podcast. I had an, oh my God, life-changing moment. Okay. Um, yeah, I use a piece of flooring, uh, like wood flooring to clamp down when I'm building my handle sets. It's something flat. And I put wax paper over that so that CA glue doesn't get all over it. Mm-hmm. And the store was out of wax paper and I saw parchment paper and I'm like, yeah, that my wife bakes with that. That works. Oh my God. Super glue does not stick to parchment paper. That is a, oh my God moment that happened to me. And I was so mad that nobody had told me about this. I watched somebody make a segmented handle and they were like parchment paper. You use parchment paper. We're going to douse the joint with really extra thin CA glue and it's not going to stick at all when it's dry. And he was right. I put, part, I put parchment paper down on my clamp up surface and I can clamp like six or seven sets of knives. Well, I'm exaggerating legitimately three or four sets of knives and nothing sticks to it. I, yep. I'm going to start using it when I do my glue ups as well. I use it for a pie. I use parchment paper on all my epoxy, all my CA super glue, anything. Anything where there's going to be some sticky stuff, there's parchment paper. It is part of the shop now. And it was, you are so right. It is an aha moment. Uh, and, and I tried uh, like to, oh. uh, one of Andy's guys that was working for him, um, he was the guy that lived up in Pennsylvania or moved back to like Pennsylvania or something. Uh, he was a woodworker. The, the really fucking brilliant knife maker that was in Georgia working at a shop. No, it was and another one. Pennsylvania Craig, was it and Craig? then he moved back down. <laughs> Was it Craig? Was the the other guy that worked with Andy for like five years? He wasn't an apprentice. But he made it five years. 
or three or four years. He was a friend of Andy came down. He was after you were there. Yeah. Was it Craig? Was I, I don't Craig? know, man. I didn't know anybody made. All right. You know what? Anyway, some, dude, anyway, he, he came up with the idea. So take your parchment tube and cut it with a bandsaw. And then yeah. you have a much thinner, uh, strip. So you, uh, can use more Thanks. of the roll. Thanks. That was going to be my reel. That, oh. that, that was going to be my knife tip reel. All right. We'll do it before, uh, this Still goes up be. in December. Yeah. And if, you put a piece of mask, if you put a piece of masking tape where you're going to cut it, like it keeps everything nice and clean apart. for you. That's yeah. also an just, aha moment. I put a rubber band around there in between. Uses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or you could just use a piece of masking tape, but the rubber bands oh, no. re- reusable. Yeah. And side note, um, Masking tape also doesn't stick very well to parchment paper. <laughs> really? That's why no you, gotta, do. That's why you, you should use a rubber band. Way, <laughs> you got to wrap it all the way around so it sticks to itself. Which is why you should use a rubber band. I think you guys should also mention here that you probably want to take it out of the box and not cut through the metal <laughs> zipper cutter part. Let's take it out of the box so we're not going to do that little strip of metal on the box. But I don't so know. Maybe we, not. My wife just got a, my wife just got a box that. of it, and it's a plastic piece. It's not even metal anymore. It's oh, like really serrated plastic. Yeah, they've 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 completely cheapened it out. Yeah, they're ripping <sighs> us off now. And it was on the saran wrap one too, and it cuts like super crappy. Do you even use regular? I cannot use anything but the Costco roll of food wrap anymore. Because it's got the little zipper that goes across the top. No. I refuse to try to struggle with the with the little teeth no. edge to cut saran wrap. It's just impossible. So just go you to Costco or Sam's Club and get the one with the little zipper on it. It's about two feet wide. It's about eight inches. Yeah. It's it's the yeah. it's a food service one. It's like once you worked in a restaurant, you can't you can't go back to using the home saran wrap anymore. We we basically only use the home saran wrap like during like parties and stuff, so I don't have to my, cut it very often. My hundred percent indicator of where you in food services is when I walk into the kitchen and you've got the industrial saran wrap, you know, two feet wide, eight inches around. Full baking tins. They don't even fit into my oven at home. You got like the full yeah. full size baking sheets. You can pull it tight and when you're done, it looks like a window. <laughs> the good stuff. It's funny how yeah. you get excited about little things like that. I'm not going to lie. I may have torn stuff off and redone it. Cause if I can't get all four corners pulled tense, so I don't have any ripples. So I got perfect. Like I just can't look at myself in the mirror. <laughs> all right. Then I start cussing about who's got my Sharpie. Yeah. All right. You want to. Yeah. Okay. Start uh, with the retail scene. Yeah. We, you, oh god, it's gonna suck. You're gonna have to edit this thing forever. Yeah. Good for the listener though. <laughs> All right. Um let's touch on some of the fads and styles, the come and go, because you were you were retail for about twelve years. Like um was there stuff that was flashing a pan? Was there stuff that was kind of consistent? I think the consistent thing is at least for 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 me at 
where I was selling knives, <laughs> the hammered Damascus Japanese stainless steel knives. Stainless steel tended to be at, at, at the Phoenix location was more people were buying stainless than carbon, even though I'm like, I really appreciate carbon steel. But the hammered Damascus, whether it's the 16 or 17 layer up to, you know, 57, 63, 67, whatever it is. But it's a pretty common, pretty common knife, production knife that's out there. One place, it's an OEM for sure. Somebody makes it. And there's probably a dozen people that brand it and sell it as their own. And maybe they have a brown handle or the other one has a black handle or whatever it is. That was always the most popular knife. Like people just loved that 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 Damascus, and also I think it had a lot to do with the price being right. That's one thing about those Japanese knives is that it's so hard to compete with the prices of the Japanese. Well, stuff. well you don't have to worry about fit and finish. It's easy to bring it in. <laughs> yeah, I when think it handle- depends. I mean, there are some there. There's. There's certainly there's certainly some makers that pay more attention to that, but there's some production companies that I would say too, pretty high level of fit and fit. Misono is one of them. Their fit and finish is really clean, and those knives, some of their basic, they, they call them the Misono handmade series. You're looking at ninety dollars for a knife that's really clean. Anyways, yeah. Um, it, yeah. So we'll get off of that. The Damascus is definitely was a popular thing. And then the Nakiri style knife and the that was really popular for a while, which is your vegetable cleaver. Yeah. Smaller than the Chinese cleaver, thin like a chef's knife, usually around seven inches. Those were popular. Really flat on the cutting edge, too flat for me. I've never been able to really get behind them. They just don't lend to my cutting style. And I like a pointed, sharp tip. I found that I always was doing a lot of detail work with the front, you know, inch of, of my knife. But also lately, the, the bunka is all the rage or was when I finally left retail. And that's another all-purpose knife. It probably has a curve a little more similar to a Santoku. But instead of the Santoku style tip where... Um, gosh, it just has much more curve down to the point of the knife. This is like they just sheared it off at an angle, and they call it a K tip. More like a K tip. Yep, yep, okay. the K tip. Yeah, Bunka is just I think a small all-purpose knife is the translation for it. But um, but that was the five inch, like the um, uh, not the um, kiwi. Um, the Kiwi brand Kiwi, knife? Yeah, they had that little five inch knife that it was like three dollars, but oh, it they was, have a lot. Yeah, they have, they have Kiwi's got they, a lot of them. Yeah, Kiwi had this little five inch knife that the number of chefs that brought me one are like, can you make this except with good steel and fit and finish? Yeah. Yeah, so generally the Bunka is about a six to say, you know, 160. Oh, so it was a, more of a full size. 165 to 180 millimeter. That was really popular at the end. The K-tip just, I think, looks cool. People just like it. Uh, I don't know that it functions all that much differently than a regular chef's knife. It 
personally. For me, I'm sure somebody could make an argument for why it's like that. I believe it's a regional variation of a shape of a knife. Yeah, I mean, there's something about the index on the tip, and there's something about having a little more mass forward. But there's so many other ways that you could adjust that. I mean, you you could lighten a tang, you could change your grind a little bit. There's a lot of different ways to get to that point, my perspective. That yeah, said, that brings up the I make old... shit out of my K-tips. You what? I make a buttload of K-tips, and I love them. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I fully drank the Kool-Aid on them, but I have to acknowledge I like them. I like the way the tip indexes, and I like the balance on them. But I have to acknowledge there's other ways to get that same level of performance or that same type of performance. Now, do you make yours with with a flatter cutting edge, less belly up towards the tip, less sweep? Um, I actually do a push cut style where the heel is kind of low and I do a rock chop style where the heel comes up a little bit, depending on on your, your cutting style. Cool. So it may not be a true K tip, but I tweak them. I tweak them both ways, depending on if you push cut or rock chop. Yeah. Right on. That was one of the things I noticed that was always trendy. You get the kind of the different shapes of the all-purpose knife, right? Like, how can we reinvent the wheel? And then at the end of my retail days, everybody wanted the Serbian. <laughs> the Serbian. Out in the woods, that thing is the most hideous knife I've ever seen in my life. And it's totally impractical for use in a kitchen, in my opinion. I've held them. and But anyways, that was what everybody wanted those. But I guess it's not all that different from the Chinese cleaver as far as having a nice tall blade and having a flatter edge. There's a YouTube channel like cooking guy that a lot of people just love watching him make stuff out in the woods and on the stump. And yeah, I mean, yeah. that's, that's, that made the craze. So, but people were really, really, I mean, I would get messages all the time. Hey, do you guys sell this or can you get this? And for me, I'd always be like, that's, that's no. And I, I, I mean, first of all, I hate that knife, but I, I have to disagree a little bit on the comparison to the, the Chinese cleaver. Uh, I kind of got down that rabbit hole with Chef Craig because he came up through a Thai kitchen and working with him to make a, a, a Chinese style cleaver that I do. Um, the The balance point and the the way the edge interacts on a Chinese cleaver, I think, is different. Um, making the Chinese cleaver a, a useful kitchen knife versus that Serbian piece of trash. There and is- it's not being Serbian that makes it trash. It's just that particular knife that makes it trash. I want to be clear. The day before I leave to go spend time in Serbia, the Serbian part of that knife is not an issue. It's the shape. They're coming yeah, he was, for you. He- he was just saying the like he can see why it could be somewhat useful with being the height and stuff similar. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't consider it, but you know, they have a shorter handle, just like the Chinese cleaver, but they're they're very different. But I 
I think that people like tall knives for some reason sometimes. I have run into this uh, people that don't pinch grip, they um, you know hammer grip. They want a tall knife so their knuckles don't bang into the cutting board when they're cutting. Yeah, not knowing that if you just move up to a pinch grip, that's not an issue. Yeah, your knuckles are really nowhere <laughs> near. But it, you know we get we get sucked into doing things the way we've done them forever, and it's hard to yeah. change old habits. I was, I had spent a lot of time in a kitchen before I learned not to index my, my trigger finger? Index finger. Index, not to, that just didn't sound right. Not to index my index finger over the spine of a knife um, when I was doing basic, uh, like, chopping cuts. Right, like there was there was an argument for some of the butchery cuts, 100%. but the rest of the time, I call it the accusatory grip. Yeah, and it works really well when you're using small utility knives, fruit knives, things like that, and it works well in butchery, and it works well in slicing applications. And there's people that are far more versed than myself at cutting techniques. I I don't argue to have the best knife skills. Or, or even really keep up with with that the way that I I should, but my my path is different, so my focus is in other places. But uh, but yeah, that a lot of people like to have that finger up there, and you just can't get any any drive or momentum behind your knife that way when you're trying to work with larger food items. And I found the lateral stability. You lose when you get your finger up there. You lose that. Is it X or Y axis? The left to right stability. Sure. You lose that. Oh, and we've we've digressed down a rabbit hole, as I do as my Adderall wears off. <laughs> um, uh, what are some things that, that helped or hurt the sellability of knives that you saw when you were at uh, when you were in retail? You talked about the folded steel, the, the pattern welding. Yeah. Anything uh- the laminated Damascus, anything with aesthetics like that, I think that was really popular. People like that. Handle materials. This is kind of covering some other maybe questions, but. Yeah, it, it, at this point in the broad podcast, Kyle would love for you to knock out three or four questions with one answer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you right now that. Um, when it comes to when people are going to spend more money on a knife, it's you cannot. Yes, steel is important, and for for us knife nerds and us people that are this is our lives, we're really into steels and Rockwell hardness or geometry or all these things. But but for a lot of the average knife users they cannot dis- discern between why is that knife $500 and that knife $90 if they look the same. They're both shiny. Exactly. So I've kind of always thought that we're in the, we're in the business of selling handles and mm-hmm. you, you need to have some nice material selection <clears throat> and there needs to be Oftentimes, 
yeah, a, a fit and finish will definitely be noticed. A nicer fit and finish will be noticed by people. For the love of God, people, quit leaving belt marks in your blades. Sorry, that just slipped out. <laughs> There's a time and a place for everything. <laughs> so, uh, remember, the hate mail goes to Kyle Daly. <laughs> I'm not the one that said it. Yeah, but you're the responsible adult here. The forge finish <laughs> look or the Kurochi finish in Japanese. I always found that to be popular with people. Some people would be like, this knife looks used. Other people would think it was cool because it looks handmade, right? Because if you leave some Man. forge scale on your knife, it does look handmade. And that is a whole aesthetic of that old world, you know, finish. Those the things first time somebody wanted me to put defects into a blade like let me get this straight you want me to make this blade look like an apprentice made it they're like yeah okay this hurts my soul but i need to pay rent yeah yeah you know not a a a hand sanded hand rubbed satin finish doesn't sing to everybody I, Mm. i think that we can appreciate like i love it when you have a really clean Nice pull strokes. Everything's perfect. Running one direction from like the Ricasso or no directional changes. Oh, it like I love it. It's so clean looking. It just looks different than anything else, in my opinion. For me, I love it. But a lot of people don't appreciate that or can't appreciate that. And a a Scotch Bright belt finish looks just as cool, or the belt satin finish to some people and. I know that I really, really, really like. I really like the forge finish, that orange peel, yeah, pear skin it, texture mm-hmm. on a knife. I just I like textures. I like textures and I like colors, and and those things speak to me. And that gives me, as a knife maker who considers himself to have some artistic tendencies. I like to look at things like that. I, I liked food and plating food was always or creating a dish was like textures and colors and kind of composing a dish, right? And knives and I need to be the same. And I love and I love the time and money I save on just buffing out forge scale versus the amount of time. So few people appreciate what it takes to get a satin finish. It's like making two perfectly right angles. It has pained me to learn that that is just wasted time and effort. The minority of people will ever appreciate it. Put some forge scale on that shit, buff it out, save yourself four hours worth of shop time, and get it out the door. I mean, it's a different look, and it works. Do it well. If you're going to do that, just do it well, right? Yeah. Um, The downside to leaving that forge scale is if your grind line is off, people are going to know. 100%. 100%. I think that goes with the aesthetic and the style of knife in a way. You, people are going to be more forgiving about that, right? It is more yeah. challenging for sure in a forged blade where you better be able to forge a lot flatter. There's, I think there's a little bit of leeway with that knife, though, with your grind lines. But yeah, you, you need to obviously get everything. Even it's going to tell on you for sure. Um, it's almost funny because... Sometimes I find myself saying, why am I even doing this? I should just forge thick and just grind and everything's clean and I can fix all this stuff. 
instead of trying to forge so thin and every time i hit it the nice curl and upsetting and turning directions on me and it wants to do all this weird stuff and i'm fighting to keep the knife straight and thin and no low hammer blows and all this stuff just so i can have an aesthetic but i maybe shouldn't share this but you know what it's going to come out eventually I may or may not have been drinking some liquor around a fire with an ABS master. And it was getting late and we were talking. And I'm like, hey, um, what percentage of the knife do I have to do? For those that haven't figured it out by now, I'm stock removal. You know, what percentage of the knife do I have to do with hammer work for my, my ABS apprentice? I said, Just, what do you mean? What percentage? I'm like, well, like how many hammer strokes do I have to put? He's like, none. What are you talking about? I'm like, so theoretically, and you could see it dawn on him. He was like, oh shit, Eastland, don't, please don't. I'm like, so theoretically, I could heat up a bar of steel, hit it once with a hammer, anneal it, stock removal the entire blade, draw it back. He's like, Eastland, look, just just come to the shop a couple of weekends. You don't need to do this. I'm like, oh no, no, I do. I need to hit it once with a hammer. <laughs> There's and a lot of people that talk about that and and talk about that with the ABS. Yeah, you. I mean, you can sign up to be an apprentice and, and not forge any knives and still be a member of the American Bladesmith Society. People, people that talk about forge thick, grind thin are losing, in my opinion, and... I freely admit that I'm a stock removal stand on the outside casting stones, but if you're going to force thick and grind thin, you might as well just be stock removal. I 100% agree with you. I forge because I like to be out there in front of the fire and I like to bang around on the anvil with the hammer. But also the real reason you would forge is if you wanted to maybe save a little bit on materials if you're forging closer to shape, you're not grinding as much. You're not spending as much money on abrasives. Now, I'm not the best at forging the shape, so I'm still buying all the belts, and I'm still grinding through them like crazy. Stephen Fowler gave me the best answer on why to forge versus stock removal. And he said, I like to hit shit with hammers. 100%. And I like um, to play with fire. But he, if he's going to do it, he's going to do it 90% on the anvil. Like, when he forges, he forges. It becomes one of those things where every time you forge, you're, how can I get this closer? How can I get this better, right? How yeah. can I get this closer to shape? You look at guys like Lynn Ray, and it's unbelievable how he forges. And it's just so much fun. It's not for everybody. And that's okay. We're all knife people. We like knives. I like. I make stock removal knives when I have to. It's okay. As long as you're not one of those CNC jackasses, we can all agree that. <laughs> I don't. I'm not even against that. I, I'm. I'm playing when I say that. I just meant the. Yeah. You know, every time there's a change in technology, it's like, no, that's not knife. No, making. we can't do that. Us over here, us original guys, we're knife making. You cheater. <clears throat> yeah. It, it's. At some point, we're going to have to do a podcast in the to talk about the 
as technology, CNC, 3D printing, as that improves, like where are we going to define the line for maker? Yeah. Well, um, anything, if you're creating a product, you're a maker. You design it and then you build it. Even if you're letting the machines build it, because isn't the way of the world moving towards robotics? And I was about to say where it's really going to get sketchy is there's um, uh, computers, the AI computers that are doing art now that you just put in keywords for the theme and it creates original quote unquote art that is really starting to blur the, the artist maker line. I think the thing that sets you apart there is the computers will be too, too perfect. It'll be too precise. Part of being an artist is, is having screw ups in your work. It, it burned my ass for a while that I was killing myself to be able to do something by hand. So it looked like a machine did it. Like I was working really hard to get the level of symmetry and perfection so that it looked like it was done on a machine. Yeah. Yeah. That's taking pride in your work and that's all right. And I think a lot of us makers, we, we get in there and we just get real laser focused and then we overthink every step of the knife and we just work away at it. And it's a really common and easy to do, but I totally think that some of the some of the coolest looking knives it's not intentional. It is and it uh, isn't. Well now we'll start to flake off on tools versus art pieces versus Yeah. I think a lot of people want to support the the maker and stuff too. Like you make a good product, like we all make good products, but why somebody might want to buy somebody else's over another person is like uh, they feel more connected with your social media. Like they uh, <laughs> identify with your thing. You're on a podcast, you're doing whatever. So yeah, we're networking, right? We're all making connections here. We all make. Well, and there's, there's a little piece of me in every blade I make. There is occasionally some blood, certainly some sweat. And there is, there is focus and time and energy that I put into that blade. It is not, it's not a sterile widget that just fell off an assembly line. I don't want to get deep and start talking about the soul of a tool, but there, there is a little piece of me in every blade that I've made. I, I, I honestly believe there is something just beyond its mechanical facets and everything I make. And that uh, Magna Cut Kep art, I'm sure there was a few four-letter words that uh, were in that one. There's a lot of four-letter words and some blood and possibly a little bit of flesh in that one. <laughs> you have what is quite possibly the first, last, and only Magna Cut Kep art I will ever make. <laughs> At least hand-sanded. Oh, God. <laughs> well, and just... So as you know, we're we're going to be honest, circle of truth. We're all makers here. A lot of my patterns, it may have started out that I was going to make a, uh, a Scandi and it got away from me a little bit and it became a saber. 
Or maybe it got away from me a lot and it became a full flat grind. With the Kephart, there is a pretty narrow bracket on six separate grinds that I'm doing. So that is six separate opportunities for me to screw up that knife. And it is one of the reasons the Kepharts are, I don't do a lot of them and they're very frustrating is because that grind has very clearly defined criteria for all six of those aspects that I'm doing. If I blow one of those, they go, it goes into the bucket of knives that'll never be where if I'm doing an echo five that I thought was going to be a Scandi and it turned out it wanted to be a, um, a saber, I could still save that knife um, and compound that with having to work with magna cut. It was, um, I'm, I'm just going to let you go free reign with the, the, the bleeping and the editing right now, because it was all of those things. <laughs> um, but we have digressed yet digressed or digressed. Digressed. I'm going to go with digress. We have digressed yet again, which is good for me. Good for you, the listener. Kind of screws Kyle. So it's it's a classic win-win. Um, what are things? What are some things that makers can do now that you've been on both sides of the fence to help their their dealers, their retailers? Like once you've decided, hey, I I, I need to get to that that retailer step. What are some things that that makers can do to to make their knives more sellable, to make them easier to move. Kitchen knives, one hundred percent. Your geometry needs to be on point. I think a lot of times, um, I think a lot of times, kitchen knives try to get reinvented, and then they become. Really cool looking, but not as functional as they should be. And I think, I think that maybe some of the smaller retail shops that have a more curated selection are are turned off by that, and it's really hard for for makers to get in the door because of that. I think geometry is extremely important if it's a kitchen knife standpoint, but also I think like anything. If you're trying to sell to a retailer, now you're not just a knife maker, you're a salesman. So you need to build relationships. You need to build relationships with dealers. And the way to do that, for a lot of people, it could be meeting the dealers at the large knife shows, spending some time talking to those people. Because that's why we go to these shows. It's not about selling knives. Yes, we want to sell knives. It's about networking. It's about meeting people. If you want to get in with the online dealers, you need to go where there's a high concentration of them. and You need to build some relationships. Or if you have some local retailers that you want to work with, I would say be consistent. Build a relationship. One of my biggest pet peeves was cold calls when people would have a product they wanted to sell and they'd walk into the store while you're in the middle of trying to sell to people that would like make me crazy but you know a cordial email or a phone call or but probably emails best you're not plugging people but, but I, I would say try to try to build that relationship with whoever it is you want to be selling your knives and and make sure that you're in the right market 
you know, don't walk into a, a kitchen knife store with, with hunting knives unless you think that's what they're really looking for. But and vice versa. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If you're, if you're somewhere where hunting is huge, unless it's nice, a nice city where it's like the person wants to have everything under the sun, but know, know who you're trying to go and, and sell your knives to. No, I don't have a ton of experience doing this. I can't produce enough knives to be able to go and sell in a retail setting. And also the number one thing you're as a maker going to struggle with is retail operations need to make money. And so do you. So if you're going to go to a brick and mortar, you can expect to give them at least a 30%. Yeah, I was going to touch on... uh on what kind of percentages they need. But I was also going to add, and I struggled with this when you're working with retailers, um, consistency and punctuality are going to be key. Once you get your foot in the door, um, you need to be able to deliver a consistent product and you need to be able to deliver it on time. Um, Cause that's most retailers don't like to carry a lot of stock. Um, so they need for you to be able to deliver the same product and they need for you to be able to deliver it on a timely basis. Yeah. Running out of stock on a popular knife and then having that be the knife that everybody wants and not having an idea when you're going to get restocked on those can be one of the most frustrating things as a salesman. Because the question is, well, when are you going to get them? Well, I really don't know. (laughs) And that's a terrible answer, but it's honest, right? And when you get it back in, it's like having the product all over again. Like you're constantly restarting the product rather than just continuing the line. Well, in this specific case, what I was talking about is one specific series of knife, right? Look, you can just say dogwood, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so when you um, – no, but if if you – yeah, stay consistent. Build a relationship. Yeah, it's it's interesting being on the other side and, and me not really being chasing any retailers at the moment or or even any online dealers. But pick pick what route you want to go, and, and I would I would definitely make sure your your product your packaging is important. Packaging is very important. People when they buy knives, they're not always buying knives for them to take home and open and, and use. A lot of times people are buying knives so they can give them as a gift. They're wedding presents, number one, first and foremost. Like if somebody's buying a knife as a gift, it's probably a wedding gift. A lot of people buy knives for weddings. Packaging is important. Having a nice presentation. I know it adds cost, but there's two things that go with that. One is the perception of professionalism, right? How did you package your knives? Is it thought out? Does does the box appropriately keep your knife safe like it's supposed to to transition it from home, from the shop to the home or whatever it is? Is it, is it easy to rewrap so that you can gift it? Is it also, is it easy for me as a retailer to stock on my shelves? And is it easy for me to know what knife is in what box? Are things labeled? If you have several different knife styles or different handle materials, those types of things, I think, really 
they would help you to be organized and they really would help the retailer. That was something that as a retailer, I'd always, when knives came in and it's like every box was labeled and you knew what size everything was in the box because a lot of times the boxes all look the same. They're all gold or they're all blue or they're all black. And none of us could read Japanese. So, you know, <laughs> I'm like, well, I, I know it's a knife in here, but if you could have packaging that's thought out, that's an appropriate size that looks professional and is structured and organized. I think that that's a, that's a big thing. And oftentimes, yeah, we're custom knife makers and we're handmade guys. So I don't really have packages for my knives. I like to present mine in a little zipper case. And if it's a fixed blade, it's got a sheath with it or whatever. But at a certain point, if you want to go into a retail setting and you're going to do more volume, you have to have a more thought out packaging. And I was going to say this isn't the perfect solution because it's it's not a box, but uh, especially for the, the mid-tech, the custom guys, Robin's cases, and I hesitant, I hesitate to tell people this because right now they've got a pretty fast turnaround. But you can get really inexpensive, custom monogrammed zipper cases. And for some of my retailers, that eight, twelve, fifteen bucks that you spent on your zipper case, it's a value added. One hundred percent. When someone's when someone's trying to decide one knife and the other and the salesman can go, Oh, and it comes with this free monogrammed case. Not only is it an easy way for it to get out of the store, they don't have to figure out what kind of box to put your knife to get it in out of the store, but it's a value added. Now the customer goes, Oh, well, I get a free case. Of course I want that one. Mm. It was, I observed at blade West, You know, I had my knives on the table and any fixed blades had sheaths next to them. So you knew that that knife came with a sheath. The few knives that I sold, when they had the sheath, they had the knife. And, the, and I'm like, well, hold on a sec. It's not it. You know, and I reached under the but table. wait, there's more. And I found my zipper case that I transported it in. And yeah, no, you get a zipper. Oh, wow, I get a zipper case too. People were kind of shocked and were like really excited about it. And yeah, it's just a little zipper case, but it's nice. Right. Like no, you dude, said, it's dude, value dude, added, dude. and it's an extra thing. No, no, you you, you charge twenty bucks for the zipper case. It's called upselling. <laughs> See, you, you offer them the knife, and then let them go. Oh shit! How am I going to get this home? And then you go, hey, for twenty bucks more, you can get this zipper case. That would just feel like double dipping. You like paying rent. <laughs> you, you want to be a knife maker or you want to be a guy that makes knives? Yeah, you want to be a knife maker or someone who pays rent. <laughs> All righty, Dano, you got any more questions or are we about ready to wrap this guy up? Um, I do, but uh, maybe we need to make it a separate episode because we haven't even really gotten into the fact that he's now a, a full-time knife maker with a line of his own. Um, let's at least um, throw some, uh, where can people find your knives? You can find me at coreydunlap.com is my website. Uh, I do list knives from time to time. I work a lot on pre-orders. My books are open, so I am taking custom orders. You can see me on Instagram, coreydunlap underscore. Uh, and I'm pretty active on Instagram as far as interacting with people. I don't post every day, 
but I do interact. Hey, you can just say I'm not old. You can just you can just say Dan, I'm not old. I interact. I'm with old, people. but I like to pretend like I'm hip. No, I, okay. I like using Instagram as a way to connect with people, like you mentioned earlier. So I, I enjoy interacting with people that I I don't know. That's why I, I really like the shows because then there's people that I've asked knife making or sharpening questions, and I've had you know conversations over a couple of years and then you go to a show and you're like heck finally get to meet this person in person i really i like that a lot but yeah you can find me at coreydunlap.com and coreydunlap underscore on instagram coreydunlap custom knives and sharpening is my kind of doing business as but uh but yeah it's just coreydunlap kind of easy to find me if you look that up and look up sharpening or look up knives and, and if you need yeah. any nanohone products if you yeah if you need nanohone sharpening supplies please reach out i'm an authorized dealer of nanohone i've been really impressed with those and products and i like the fact that it's a, a u.s stone company uh, the ceramic stones they- are made in japan but uh, all the other products are made in the u.s and it's just a it's a nice company to deal with they're new they're young they're still growing and building and they're coming out with all these new product lines there's some really cool hand sanding stuff that he's making for makers which i think is really promising that stuff's going to be coming down the pipeline so there's cool stuff going on and yeah i'm sure there's that would intrigue me and they've got some stuff to kind of replace the old chef steel as well don't they yeah the strop the nano strop is is one of, I think, the most efficient and most useful and easy to use honing tools ever. It's by far better than a sharpening steel or even a diamond steel. It is a diamond resin abrasive. It's the same diamond resin honeycomb matrix that he uses on the sharpening stones, but it's bonded to about a 14 inch or 13 inch long uh, tube and it has a nice little wooden handle on it and you're able to just get the exact same angle that you would pass your knife over a stone when you're sharpening so you don't get that micro bevel that you get from the round honing rods or round sharpening steels mm. you get a flatter edge and because it's diamond you're cutting away that damage microscopic little damage that's happening from use so it's really great for maintenance and it's about the easiest thing to use. A lot of times I just try to tell people just slow down, slow down what you're doing and hone your knife. It doesn't have to be all fast and erratic. It's simple, consistent passes and they come in two sizes. So if you're a folder guy or a hunting knife guy, and you want to go out into the field and you want something for your pack, there's an eight inch version that's, that's really mobile. And then you do have the, the full size version and Kyle, you have one, don't you? Yep. I've got one of the one micron, the 475 millimeter ones, which is like 25 inches long. Um, I really like that. I actually put a pretty good edge back on one of my customer's knives. When I was coming back from blade show, when I bought it, he goes, you wouldn't happen to have anything that sharpens. Would you? I'm like, I just came back from a blade show. I, I don't have anything. And then I was like, Oh, I did buy this. And I should have bought the three pack, but uh, getting the other two, the the 25 micron and the 10 micron, I think will really be good. Uh, Being able to take those three with me to a 
to a friend's house or something and not have to lug a ton of other gear and be able to really touch up some people's knives. Yeah, they're really great. It's it's a really interesting product and everybody that sees them, I, I can't keep them in stock. I think they work really well and they're really easy to use. So a lot of exciting stuff coming from, from that company right now. And I, I just don't think you see all that much new stuff coming from sharpening. Sharpening companies is it's the stuff's been around forever and it works and we've been using it forever and we're happy with what we have and kind of nice to see some new products and maybe i just don't pay as much attention to it as i should but it's like um, knives what what could possibly new, be new about knives we've had them for millions of years they... right yeah exactly so so all exciting things and uh yeah maybe maybe we'll we'll get back on this again and, and have me and we can talk a little bit more about knives and yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we absolutely want to uh, come back on. I want to pick your brain a little more on the retail side and then dive into your terrible, terrible decision to go full time as a knife maker. It, it was an interesting one and we can definitely talk more about it. Sounds good. But uh, until that, judging by the death eyes that Kyle's giving me as he tries to figure out when he's going to edit all this, apparently somebody needs to say goodnight. <laughs> you can keep in touch with the podcast at knifeperspective.com. You can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Instagram's where we're uh, most active. Uh, you can keep find us on every podcasting platform. You can keep in touch with Dan Eastland at Dogwood Custom Knives at dogwoodcustomknives.com. Dogwood Custom Knives on Facebook and Instagram. Need to get them TikToking, but I feel like Reels is going to be a good step for them. Yeah, it, it, that's a little more than I can take. And you can keep in touch with me, Kyle Daly of Cage Daily Knives at cagedailyknives.com and Cage Daily Knives on Facebook and Instagram, TikTok, and uh, Twitter. So pretty much most of the social media outlets. I'm going to start posting a bunch of my uh, knife maker tips that I've been doing on Instagram to uh, YouTube for their shorts. Uh, so hopefully those, um, you can find me on YouTube again. It's been like three and a half years since I posted a video. So YouTube is so MySpace. <laughs> it's the number one search engine. <laughs> is it really? Yeah. They said more people search on YouTube than they do on Google now. Damn. So, all right. There's, I can't even believe there's, there's so much information on there and there's like so many people that take time to actually make a fairly decent video and how, explain how to fix your dryer or different stuff like that. Anyway, uh, thanks, Corey, and uh, looking forward to getting those couple extra straps from you soon for the holiday season. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on, guys. It's a pleasure chatting with both of you. Dan, you have a safe trip, and Kyle will be in touch. Yeah. All right. Say goodnight, Dan. Good night, Dan. <laughs> well, let's take it to the edge, because that's what's expected. In this discussion, this is the night prospective. Let's get to the point. We're gonna talk about our things now. That's what's expected. It's the night prospective.
Yeah, we. I'd like to finish up some more of the the little retail. Um, Can you turn your microphone more towards you? It looks like it's like falling away. Like that? That's Is that better. better? That's much better. Like, can I speak into them? Yeah. <laughs> just, just Sorry. angle it. Just angle it more towards you. Angle it. Right, yeah. Just like right in my face. Yeah. You sound okay. way better. I could barely hear you. Oh shit! Why didn't you tell me that sooner, dude? We've been well, recording for like three freaking hours. I thought my eyes were deceiving me that the thing was freaking rotating. Yeah, I'm not buying it, dude. <laughs> yeah. I clearly remember you telling me that earlier I needed the microphone at like a 90 degree angle. Well, you want it like, yeah, closer to you. Like, oh, like closer? Or or like a 45. Like 45? Yeah. There we go. This is going wrong so fast. I'm like, and then you're. <laughs> this is why we don't record in video. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And that's why it goes in the, the outtakes at the end.